and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff for the 301st time. That's right, this is episode 301. That last week was episode 300. We left you on a big cliffhanger last week because we started our countdown of the top 10 TV shows of all time for us. Uh, and now today we are going to be finishing it, which is kind of an interesting experiment for us, Sean, because usually when we do these big two-parters, we just record them all at once and then split them up in the edit. But we've actually waited a week, so I, like the listeners, have been on pins and needles waiting to hear what your top five are. Yeah, same here. Yeah, it it turns out that like once we have actual responsibilities, it becomes much harder to just do five to six hour recording sessions and do two podcasts in a row. And this feels yes. more sane. This just feels like a oh, yeah, that's right. You can, you can just you don't have to stock up and do the whole thing at once. Yeah, but anyway, I am excited to hear more from you. Uh, I think I know what two of your five are, and I don't know what the other three are. Yeah, I think we both know two that are both in our top five, um, almost undoubtedly. But similarly, I have guesses about what your other three might be, but I, I'm not super confident in almost any of them. Yeah, I'm very curious to find out. Excited to get there. Got a couple of other pieces of stuff on the docket today. No real news, but a couple, like I said, little pieces of stuff. And I also want to talk at least a little bit about the Joker movie, which I saw, so you don't have to. Although Sean, who has not seen it yet, says he might wind up seeing it. So maybe there'll be a bigger segment on that later. Yeah, we'll see. The, The main thing is that my dad wants to see it, so... If he wants to go see it, I will go to it with him because might as well. Um, For emotional yeah. support. <laughs> sure, yeah. Like, I, I don't have a huge desire. I mean, I have a curiosity. I know I had it spoiled for me already by one of my students. So I know what happens in the movie. Um, yeah. So I don't have, I have like a mild curiosity to see how do they, like, how do they do the thing that, that some of the things that I've heard happen in that movie? How does it actually do that? Because there, there are multiple things that sound like awful ideas that are at the end of that movie. And the middle of that movie and the beginning of that movie. And we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yeah. Sean, I'll just ask you, like we do every week, what you been up to? You got any stuff for us? Um, I've been plucking away at a couple of things. I've um, been playing... I've been playing some fighting games, actually. Because, one, um, Gogeta Blue dropped recently for uh, Dragon Ball Fighters. And I was kind of waiting for him to come out because uh, they've been kind of doing little piecemeal releases of the season two DLC characters because they had Videl and Jiren um, back in like March or February. Um, and then they've just been doing like individual characters since then, which has made it kind of like not I haven't gone back to the game, even though I bought the season two pass at the beginning of the year. I haven't gone back for each DLC character. They released GT Goku then they did Janimba, and then now they've got done Gogeta Blue, and then they'll do Broly from the Super Broly movie at some point, um, probably in like December or something, I would guess, at this pace. Um, so I had just been kind of like slowly watching that the DLC characters were coming out, but it hadn't really come back to the game. When Gogeta Blue dropped, I was like, okay, now I want to, I want to play as fucking Gogeta, so let's go. Um, and Gogeta is awesome. Um, he is a really, really fun character to play as because he's... Um, a much more approachable character than some of the other DLC characters have been. I think Videl, Jiren, and Janimba, all three of them are kind of harder characters to get your head around a little bit. Like, you kind of have to learn how to play them very specifically. Um, and they don't just kind of follow the same basic patterns that a lot of the sort of Goku-style characters do in that game. 
Um, GT Goku is also pretty approachable. He's a very fun character. They did a good job with him. But Gogeta, just like, he has sort of a lot of the same fundamental combo paths as most of the other Saiyan characters in the game. So if you like to play as, like, Super Saiyan Goku or Vegeta or Goku Black or, like, any of those sort of, like, the main baseline kind of characters, Gogeta has a lot of similarities with them. But he also just has a shit ton of really, really cool stuff he can do. So he's got a really a ridiculous number of super attacks. He's got um, three level one supers and then one of his level one supers can has a modifier on it to do extra damage. And he's got his level three super, which can be a level five if you have enough bars for it, like Goku Blue or Vegeta Blue, where you just like push it and just have this ridiculous attack you can do. Um, so he has... And all of his supers are the best looking in the game. Like, everything about Gogeta is basically the best looking anything um, in that game. His, like, opening animation is the coolest opening animation. His, uh, like, winning pose is probably the coolest winning pose. But his supers are all basically just pulled from the Dragon Ball Super Broly movie. And so since they're really closely adapting that aesthetic, and that is the best looking Dragon Ball thing there has been to date, like, the best looking Dragon Ball video game doing the best looking Dragon Ball movie... Turns out that that looks really fucking cool. So he does, like, the big, just, like, giant array of blue key blasts from that movie where he just kind of fans out. And it's just, like, zooms out. And this is just ridiculous, massive fan of blasts. He has that move. He's got his Big Bang Kamehameha. Um, he has... Um, he can do the Stardust Breaker from the um, Fusion Reborn movie as that kind of modifier on one of his ground supers. But the biggest thing is his level 3 is that move from the Super Broly movie where he just kind of like, he does this big like charge up pose, rams into the enemy, knocks him into the, the air, and then he throws his arms up and just screams. And in the movie, Broly just like explodes in midair. So he does that and that's his level three. And that's very cool. But if you have two extra bars, you can then push it to a level five. And if you do the level five, then the, the um, background stage just turns into like the like lava hell area from that movie from the end of that movie and Gogeta does his massive Kamehameha and they do the same camera movements where it like zooms into his pupil and then zooms back out really fast as he fires the Kamehameha and it looks so fucking good that even even in the middle of a fight if it doesn't make sense to do that because you know you're not going to get the kill and it's probably just like a waste of two bars I have done it every single time when I play the arcade mode because it's just like I have to just see that again because every time I've seen it like dozens of times at this point and it is always so fucking cool looking. So people nice. who have not, yeah, people have not gone to fighters in a while. Um, um, Gogeta is a very fun character to play as and he's now basically the third character on my main team. So I've been just going through and kind of playing through the arcade mode because another thing they've added in is they've added in random um, versions of the arcade mode. So instead of in the base game where each sort of fight on the single-player arcade mode was, like, you know, the first time you always fight Goku, Vegeta, and Trunks, or whatever it was, and each fight was the same set of characters. They've now added in a random tier of those, so that if you pick that, um, one, it makes the difficulty a little bit more sort of, like, baseline, which is nice, so it's not as, like, oh, the first match is so easy that you get it perfect every single time, and the last match is so ridiculously hard that you can barely even scrape through. It's a little bit more sort of, like, even keel on the difficulty on the random version, and then you just can fight random characters, which means that you can fight the DLC characters, which has not been something you've ever been able to do in the single-player content up to this point, which seemed like a big 
like oversight or something that that was not something that was like easily available in terms of single player content adding in the random version of the arcade makes the playing the arcade mode multiple times um a lot more fun so that's that's been one of the main things i've been doing nice i have been meaning to go back to fighters i played i played when gt goku came out and i booted it up once for janemba and tried that out and i thought janemba was very cool the animations were like I mean, they always are. It's like it kind of yeah. is like almost not worth saying with fighters. Every time they do it, they hit it out of the park. But it was still, Movie 12 is one of my favorites. Seeing all those Janemba animations was very cool. Uh, I have not played as Gogeta yet. Um, I think I saw the arcade thing when they added that a couple months ago. So um, I'm excited to get back into it and try that. I'm kind of barely um, treading water with all the video games I'm trying to juggle right now. But <laughs> Fighters is there. I just updated it the other day. So I'm excited to play it again at some point. Yes, and if you like the Janimba movie, they, they've added in a dramatic finish that is the ending of that movie if you beat Janimba with Gogeta. I think on the, on the Kai planet stage, if you do that, then That's you That's fantastic. Get, it's very good. They even have him like transform from Super Saiyan Blue to normal Super Saiyan. It's very good. It's, it's like with everything else with the Gogeta character, it's maybe the best looking dramatic finish. The only other one that is probably as good is the Trunks versus Zamasu one. Um, but other than that, like, yeah, Gogeta... Gogeta just looks fucking awesome. He's a great character, yep. and they they put a lot of love into what is like maybe just like the coolest Dragon Ball character there is. Not saying there's a huge amount of substance to Gogeta as a character, but he sure is very cool. He's one of my favorite character designs. We've talked about yeah. this before, and especially in the Broly movie, I think with um, Shintani's character designs in that one, like it's just it's such a great refinement of that character. It looks so good. Yeah, and they and he is specifically that version of the character. Like they, they, it's the same color palette. It's the same kind of like design. He's a little bit leaner looking than some of the other characters. Um, so yeah, it's great. He's he's awesome. Dragon Ball Fighters turns out that's a really good game. Um, I've been having a lot of fun playing that again. Awesome. Um, I have not been playing many fighting games. I did want to tell you, Sean. I had a little leftover money on an eShop purchase recently on Nintendo. And so I did buy, at your recommendation, Garo, Mark of the Wolves, which is the SNK game that uh, you said you had played back in, like, the Xbox Arcade days and was really good. And, indeed, that game is really fucking cool. Playing a late-era SNK game makes me angry that the rest of the industry abandoned sprite work. Because Mm -hmm. it's so fucking... I didn't know it could look that good for, like, moving... Like, we have a lot of, like, sprite work platformers today, but not games with, like, a ton of character movement like that. It's unbelievable. Yeah. No, yeah. For people who don't know what Garo Mark of the Wolves is, it's the last Fatal Fury game that's been made. Because SNK has, like, a bunch of different fighting game franchises. Their main one is King of Fighters. But King of Fighters started as a crossover from a bunch of their other fighting game franchises. The main one being Fatal Fury, which is where Terry Bogart is from. Which is why you're playing it, because he's been added as... He's going to be the next DLC character for Smash Brothers. So Garo Mark of the Wolves is the last as like proper Fatal, Fatal Fury game they've made. Like Those characters are all in KOF, so you can still play as Terry Bogard in new video games. But in terms of like classic sprite-based 2D fighter, um, Garo Mark of the Wolves is just from that era, from the late 90s, early 2000s, like, along with like Street Fighter 3, in terms of like just stupid number of frames of animation on like everything it's just you look at it it's like i have no idea how human beings made this game because it looks like it takes so much work just to do like the idle poses of some of those characters um it's it's just so luxurious looking 
that I'm with you. It, it is it is that thing where um, we say this sometimes about like Super Nintendo games that the like that kind of 2D sprite aesthetic. Like one of the reasons why that holds up so well for the Super Nintendo games is because it reached a certain level of where it's harder for things in that style to look much better than it did at that time. Um, and I feel that's very true of those late era sprite based 2D fighters that they look as good as any video game because they are at the height of what was kind of accomplished, what could be accomplished with that art style in those techniques. Like it's hard to imagine something looking much better than a Garo or a Street Fighter 3. Yeah, it's really cool. And it makes me want to play that game and then maybe check out one of the King of Fighters or something. Because um, I looked it up and also Garo seems like among SNK fans, it's one of the more beloved like that mm -hmm. and maybe king of finders fighters i think 97 is the one that people really love but like yeah it's uh definitely very cool and again it's cool that those games are on ps4 switch you can just they have all of them out there and that's yep. that's nice um but anyway what i really want to talk about um you know i've been playing more dragon quest 11s i don't really have anything new to say about that game we haven't said before i'm enjoying it i've been playing some other things but i've been on the hunt for a new controller for my nintendo switch um, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. I was looking for a controller with a really good D-pad, and I had gotten at the time the 8-bit do uh, wired SN30 Pro, and I told you guys I was enjoying that, and I liked it. The problem is, shortly after we recorded that, I tested that out on Dragon Quest XI-S because I realized, so that controller, just to recap, is basically, it looks like a Super NES controller, um, but it has thumbsticks, shoulder buttons and then a home button and a share button so it's got everything you need to play switch games and the problem was i hadn't really used the thumbsticks yet because i was using it to play 2d games and so when dragon quest 11s came out i plugged that controller in and was using it and i tried out the thumbsticks and they didn't work on the model i had gotten because like um the the, the character would just like if i moved the camera to the right a little bit the thumbstick would like the input would stick and it would just start spinning, you know, oh, yeah. or something like that. And I was like, oh, shoot. But it was well within the return period, like no big problem. I just wrote up a return thing to Amazon, sent the controller back, no big deal. And then I was like, well, do I want to just get a replacement of that or do I want to take the money I already spent and get a slightly nicer version? Because 8-Bit Do makes several of these. I had gotten the wired USB version, which is $25.00. And has everything except motion controls because it's wired. Um, but it has rumble and all the other stuff. So then I could have a choice. But I wanted to kind of, I'm like, I like this controller so much. I think I want to pay the extra 20 bucks to get it wireless, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so then I had two options. Because SN30, so they have the SN30 Pro wireless. And then they also have what they just released like two months ago. And has been getting a lot of acclaim on the on the internet is the SN30 Pro Plus, which is basically that original gamepad they made with big, nice, fat grips on it and slightly different triggers and, and just a slightly wider layout. It kind of looks like a bigger PS4 controller or just a Super NES controller with sticks, which is what a DualShock is. <laughs> so yeah. quite literally, if you look at the original PlayStation controller, it's just a Super NES pad with sticks. Um, so I bought that. That's $50. Um, got that in, and it worked out of the box just fine. And this controller has been getting a lot of acclaim, so I'm not trying to like shit on it here. It's, I'm just going to tell you why it wasn't for me. You might really love it. Um, it's, it's everything I liked about the base SN30 Pro. It's too big a controller for me. It's too wide because it is a Super NES pad, which 
like a PS4 controller or a Switch Pro controller kind of curve in around the sticks near the top, so they make it a little easier to hold. But this, because it's literally a Super NES pad, which does not have that curvature with sticks on it, and they made it a little wider, so like you had more space between the thumbsticks. Um, it was just a bit too wide, and I found it a little unwieldy. And the other thing is, it has analog triggers, so they have like you you can push them down, and it's not just a single button. You you like press them down like a PS4 trigger, mm-hmm. and that's fine in theory, except if you're using it on Switch because the Switch doesn't have that kind of trigger movement. Triggers are just buttons on the Switch, on the Joy-Con, on the Pro Controller. And so it's a little distracting to use it on the Switch and have to, like, hold the thing down further. It just feels a little weird. It would be like using a PS4 controller on Switch. It felt a little odd to me. And I was like, okay, this isn't quite what I want either. So I returned that, and I finally settled on the... I just got the wireless SN30 Pro. I have it here so you can see it, Sean, what I'm talking about. It is just Mm -hmm. a... Basically a Super NES pad with sticks. And I got the the... The variant I've been using is the... Oh, what are they? It's the Game Boy colored variant. I think they call it a GF Classic if you're looking it up online. But as you can see, Sean, it's got red buttons like a Game Boy. And then the D-pad, um, the D-pad on a Super NES has these little arrows on it. And, and if you've ever played with a real SNES controller, those can get a little harsh on your thumbs after time. The Game Boy variant is smoother on the D-pad and it just feels a little better on your thumbs. Um, so I have this now. This is $45 on Amazon, and it's completely wireless, has rumble, motion controls. It, this can play literally any Switch game unless it's a Switch game like Mario Party that can only be played with Joy-Cons. So, mm-hmm. um, and that's the only controller. There's no third party that'll play those either. Um, but you can play everything with this. You might not want to necessarily because like a, a shooter or something, you probably do want a bigger, beefier like pro controller. But I have to say, Sean, this is one of my favorite controllers I have ever used. There's something about this being the, the heft of this as a wireless controller just feels really good in your hands. Um, I lo- I've always loved the Super NES controller. I love the shape and feel of it. It's this big, fat, nice D-pad on the left that is probably the best D-pad I've ever used. That or the PlayStation Vita. Pour one out for that. We always yeah. loved the D-pad on that. Um, but just the button placements, the, the triggers are much more like Joy-Con triggers. Um, they feel better than a Joy-Con, but they... they Definitely are the right kind of triggers you want for Switch. The sticks are great. They, they feel kind of like PlayStation 4 sticks. Again, because of like the placement of the sticks and the fact that this kind of controller doesn't have grips on it, it might not be best if you were playing Doom or something like that. But I've actually been using this to play Dragon Quest XI-S, and it's great because there's no fine movement with joysticks in Dragon Quest. And you spend so much time in menus where I prefer to use a D-pad it feels way better that way. Um, and then I've been playing some other games. I've actually been getting back into Shovel Knight because there's the new Shovel Knight DLC coming later this year and I wanted to revisit some of that. And it's just a fan-fucking-tastic controller. Um, the model I got is perfect, no problems with it, works like a charm. Um, it's also, you can use it on PC, Mac, Android, pretty much everything except iOS for whatever reason. Um, but really, really impressive controller. I'm so impressed with some of the stuff 8 Do has been putting out and... There are choices. So, like, that Pro Plus controller that has the big grips, I'm sure that's good for some people. Um, If that's what you want, I would definitely recommend trying it out. If you want something that just looks more like a Super NES controller, this is perfect. Because even if you're never going to use those sticks, it's still just a a great option. And then there's also wired ones. Um, I'm really, really impressed. I know 8-Bit do make stuff for other consoles as well, but they've been killing it on their Switch products. And this is going to be one of my 
go-to controllers for playing games from now on. I'm I'm so satisfied with it. Uh, D-pads have like the D-pad on the the Switch Pro controller isn't good. I I like the D-pad on the PS4 probably the most of any controller this generation. But even then, like the original like Super NES style D-pad doesn't really get better than that. If if D-pads are important to you, if you are that kind of person, you know who you are and why. So there you go. Awesome. Yeah. That's because I am with you. I need I need my D pad like that. Yep. Is, you need it. It's it was that thing of once I switched over to doing to being PlayStation instead of Xbox and having the D pad be readily accessible. You're like, oh yeah, no D pads are great. Like D pads are, are so good. good. And, yeah. and having you've got it. This is why I ultimately prefer the sticks next to each other configuration yeah. that PS4 has. You need the D-pad on even footing with the buttons. It's just better for me. I, I get if you never play 2D games, maybe that's not your cup of tea. But I, if, even then, I just need it for menus and stuff. I like D-pads. And this yep. controller, it's it's so good. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, and I just I got to tell you, Sean, it's amazing that we live in a world where there are such things as great third-party controllers. Because you and I grew up in an era where that was not a fucking thing at all. Yeah, yeah, we are from that era where you went over to your friend's house and you had to use, like, their... Maybe they had two normal controllers, but then, oh, well, here's the third-person controller, and it's a fucking Mad Cat's piece of shit that, like, you know, like, the B button only works, like, three times out of ten or something. It's like, yep. fucking assholes. Yeah, and I had a problem, like I said, with that wired one, but the other one I returned was perfect. It was just... I didn't... It wasn't quite for me. So... Um, it seems like the quality control is overall fine on these. But yes, uh, we've come a long way from the Mad Cats days. Um, rest in peace, Mad Cats. Yeah. You, you kind of deserved to die. Um, if I, I actually had one other product I wanted to talk about really quick that I bought this week. These were both kind of uh, birthday presents for myself. I'm turning 27 in a couple days. Um, but this one was a, an impulse purchase. They just put out on Blu-ray here in the U.S. a box set for Doctor Who, which we might talk about later today, Sean, of Doctor Who, the complete yeah. David Tennant collection. And it is 14 discs. It's all of the David Tennant years on Blu-ray. And I got it for $25 new on Amazon, which is, if you, if you have been buying Doctor Who physical media for any length of time, I'm, I feel like it must be a trick. They put something in the box. I don't know what it is because I don't know about you, Sean. Uh, buying Doctor Who physical media has always been a game of like waiting for the right sale price or finding oh, yeah. it used or something because BBC products are just expensive. And with the David Tennant stuff, I'd really never owned good versions of the David Tennant years on physical media because the DVDs way back in the day were like, no joke, 70 bucks per season. Mm-hmm. So I never owned those. And then they never came out on Blu-ray here. I had finally, I had some like bare bones DVDs of some of it, um, and I had Blu-rays of the the final season, season four point five, the specials, because those were the only ones that had been on Blu-ray previously. But this was very nice to get this for twenty five dollars. I checked out a couple of discs. The David Tennant years, along with the Chris Eccleston years, were shot in standard definition, so it is not the same kind of jump that you would get going from just standard def to high def. These are up conversions, upscales. But we've talked about how much the RTD years kind of look like shit when you watch them on DVD or streams or something. 
the Blu-ray versions, because I also have the Chris Eccleston season on Blu-ray, it is amazing how much of a jump it is because you're basically seeing the full uncompressed standard definition and it does still look, I would say, substantially better than the DVDs um, if you have any eye for that at all. Um, I was very, I watched the episode yesterday. I watched Smith and Jones, the first one with Martha and the one with the Jadoon, which is a really good Doctor Who episode yep. and um, looked very good. You also get the lossless audio on these. So I know we have a lot of Doctor Who fans who listen. If you, like me, have had a David Tennant-shaped hole in your physical media collection because there wasn't quite an easy way to just get all of that stuff, um, 25 bucks is nothing for this um and i'm very happy that it's there and i also finally have the full suite of like bonus features and all the doctor who confidentials and all that shit that i had been missing and i now have a physical media collection of all of doctor who up until its impromptu cancellation two years ago when doctor who just ended and didn't continue and there was no more doctor who that was really sad sean yeah, I, I have to say, Jonathan, as soon as I saw you tweet out about this um, David Tennant Blu-ray set, I, I bought it on Amazon immediately. So I'm getting it um, nice. tomorrow. <laughs> it's coming in. Yeah. So I'm excited because, yeah, like you, like I have um, most of Modern Doctor Who on Blu-ray. Well, I guess I basically have all the Moffat stuff at this point on, on Blu-ray. I just didn't have – I still don't have um, Eccleston season. But it was like – like you, I was like like kind of not like – you know, obsessively, but every once in a while I would look around when I had like the, man, I would, it would be nice to have this full thing um, because who knows, you know, when Doctor Who will not be easily accessible on streaming and stuff like that. And, and just to have like the bonus features and everything. And then, yeah, then seeing that's like, great, awesome. Now I don't have to worry about it. That's a big chunk of that. Just like, yep. don't have to think about it. At some point I'll need to get more classic Doctor Who stuff. Um, but that's not quite as urgent. I don't know. Like I like to have the, I, I, I have that, that just that collector's thing is since I have enough of modern Doctor Who I'm like he's just I just want that I just want to have it next to it on the shelf and I have to think about it and I have to look at it there's this like empty spot anymore yeah I, I now have basically you know Eccleston episode one to twice upon a time Capaldi's exit all on blu-ray in a row fine it's been a decade of collecting and it's like there you go all on the shelf next to each other very very nice um, so there you go Doctor Who physical media we like Doctor Who Maybe it'll come up later. Who knows? We might talk about it. I don't know. All right, Sean. Any other stuff, or should I rant about Joker for a minute? Um, I, I'll I'll mention one other thing. Um, because I said earlier that I was playing fighting games, which means I wasn't just Ooh. playing Dragon Ball Fighters. Um, I also this is was actually probably like two or three weeks ago. Um, and I've just kind of been poking at it steadily since then. Is I picked up. Um, it was on a Sony sale. I think this might have been a while ago. It was on that sale. I picked up the Street Fighter 30th Anniversary Collection, um, which is one just a fucking awesome collection. It is Street Fighter One through Street Fighter Three Third Strike. What that means is you get Street Fighter One. Um, I think it's five, maybe it's six versions of Street Fighter Two. It's it's all the major versions of Street Fighter Two, from the original to Super Street Fighter Two Turbo. I think is like the most recent. Like, the last version of Street Fighter 2 they had. Um, then you get the three Street Fighter Alpha games. Alpha 1, 2, and 3. And then you get the three different versions of Street Fighter 3. Culminating in Street Fighter 3 Third Strike. So, if you know, fighting games are confusing because, you know, they just put out multiple versions of the same game. But you get what is effectively in, like, an archival version of the arcade releases of every major Street Fighter release pre-4. And so it's like it goes up to basically where Street Fighter 4 would happen. Um, and so you have 
the arcade ladders for all those. So you can, you know, if you want to play Street Fighter 1, you can play the arcade Street Fighter 1. Um, it's bad. Street Fighter 1 is very bad. Um, Street Fighter 1 was where you, like, realize... This, it made me appreciate how, like, smoothly fighters plays. Would you, like, you look at where fighting games started and my complete and utter inability to just throw out a single fucking Hadouken in Street Fighter 1 is ridiculous because the timing for that game is so absurdly harsh i can kind of do it now but like it is it, it took me probably about 30 minutes of trying like on and off and playing street fighter one just to do a single super move and it was it was soul crushing <laughs> like like it made me feel like i was like eight again and trying to like learn how to play marvel versus capcom 2 and just couldn't figure out how you do anything it's like what the fuck is this game feels broken um so you do street fighter one but then you can you can do um, the arcade modes of all the other Street Fighter games, and then there's also local versus for all the all, for all the games, and then online multiplayer for um, I think it's the the latest version of normal Street Fighter Two, the latest version of Super Street Fighter Two, Alpha Three, and Three Third Strike. So basically, like the most recent version of each of the major releases, which is Street Fighter Two, Super Street Fighter Two, Alpha, and Three. The most updated versions of each of those games have online multiplayer as well which I have not really played because I'm sure I would just get utterly destroyed by the people who've been playing those games for like 30 years at this point um, versus me who's been playing, who played some Street Fighter 2 when it was on 360, um, played some 3 at a local arcade like Pizza Place when I was a kid, and other than that have had really no direct experience with Street Fighter. Um, so I've been just kind of playing through a lot of the, the arcade modes as Ryu because he's the only character I kind of know how to play because i you know, he was in Marvel vs. Capcom 2. He was one of the main characters I played in that. And it turns out Street Fighter is really fucking good. I don't know if people heard, but Street Fighter 2, Alpha, and 3, all three of those games are really fucking good, and they're a lot of fun. And it's been cool kind of jumping between that and playing fighters. And, you know, they're, you know, dissimilar games in a lot of ways. But kind of seeing that, going back to Street Fighter 2, the original version of 2, and kind of feeling how much that still holds up, and how much the core fundamental concepts are the same even if like you know it's very bare bones there are no like there's no meters there's no like ultimate attacks it's only like you know everybody has like three kinds of super moves basically like a hadouken a shodoyuken and and the tornado kick um and it's so it's a very kind of bare bones fighting game you know there's not even a separate command for throws it's just you have to get really up close to someone and use your like heavy attack and you can do a throw so it's so primitive in in those ways but like the core fundamentals of like the spacing and timing and kind of like those those core elements that make the kind of fighting game dynamic fun street fighter 2 still holds up in that way which is really cool to see and, and I feel like after playing a bunch of Street Fighter 2 and then Gogeta coming out and me playing some fighters I immediately felt a much better at fighters because of how just sort of like pure and stripped down Street Fighter 2 is as a fighting game it made me like when I jumped into fighters again it made me feel like oh I'm like I'm not as distracted by the flashiness of this like very like gorgeous looking modern fighting game with like 100 hit combos and shit because in street fighter 2 the most of a combo you can hope to get is probably like five hits and that's like oh my god what a combo holy shit i can't believe you pulled that off um like that is a fun dynamic so for people who who are interested in street fighter the 30th anniversary collection is a really cool way to play those games also because it has a huge amount of really awesome like archival bonus feature kind of stuff so it has a museum mode where you can, um, one, it has like all this like great text 
um, written by someone that kind of contextualizes the place of each game in Street Fighter history. So if you want to play, you know, Hyper Street Fighter 2 Dash or whatever the fuck weird title the other Street Fighter 2 games have, and you just want to know what makes this version of this game different from the four other Street Fighter 2 games on this game, there's like a solid three to four paragraphs of text written that just kind of detail. Here's like the balance changes. Here's why they, they released this version. Like here's, they added this secret character that you can access this way. Um, so there's like a like really nice approachable text that kind of explains to you if you don't have a lot of context for Street Fighter what each of these versions are and why they're significant. Um, and then there's also just a bunch of like instruction manuals and here's like the art that was on the original arcade release of Street Fighter 2 in Japan and you can see like here's like the the what they would how they would tell you like how to do super moves for each of the characters. And the arcade version, which is just like a little piece of paper that was like slotted into the arcade machine with some art on it. Um, and all that stuff is really cool. And maybe my favorite feature is you have character bios for each of the characters that also has a gallery of the sprites for their um, super attacks. So if you want to go in through from Street Fighter 1 all the way through to Street Fighter 3 Third Strike and just go do a like play by like frame by frame of the animation for Ryu's Hadouken, you can just do that and see like, oh, here in Street Fighter 1, it's like two frames. In Street Fighter 2, it's like three frames. You get up to third strike and it's like 20. <laughs> and it's and you and it's that thing where like you, you know, you can just scroll through the images for like the Street Fighter 3 or Alpha games and, and it's like watching the animations in slow, um, in slow motion basically. And that's really cool. Um, that's like, I honestly wish that they had more of the different attack animations in that gallery because it's only their super moves. Um, but that's one of, was one of my favorite things. I literally spent like 90 minutes just going through and looking at the sprites for all the different characters, particularly in third strike, which has that Garo Mark of the Wolves level of, Oh my God, I cannot believe the level of like attention to detail that is in every single one of these moves. Um, there's some characters that just have, the most ridiculously gorgeous animations in that game and it is it is maybe my favorite bonus like thing i've seen a video game to do is just giving you um access to just looking at those individual sprites um because those games are are unbelievably gorgeous and so giving you this like very kind of pure way to appreciate that um whoever came up with that idea at that company deserves a raise because that is it is so cool that's awesome. I have been interested in picking that up, and that sounds very cool. Like, what a cool collection to put that all together. Like, Capcom is doing a good job at that. With They've got all those Mega Man collections coming mm-hmm. out. They've got this Street Fighter one. Like, they're doing a good job. Konami's even been doing okay with, like, their Castlevania and Contra collections. So, it's a good time right now for a lot of cool retro games coming out in nice packages that, like, teach you the history, which is awesome to have. So yeah, and since it seems like all the consoles are going to be backwards compatible, it's like a nice just like oh, I just have this, and if I ever yeah. want to play Street Fighter Alpha Two for whatever reason, I just want to go through that arcade ladder, I I can just play this game when like the PS Five comes out or whatever. Um, so yeah, yeah, if people are interested in having that kind of collection, um, the 30th anniversary collection for Street Fighter is extremely well done. Awesome, that is very cool to hear. And Sean, I also have to tell you, um. You mentioned Marvel vs. Capcom at the beginning of this segment, and I have had, I want to take you for a ride. Mm-hmm. That's just been in my head for like five minutes while you've been talking. So, yeah, now it's in your head. It's, <laughs> it's, it's never left my head since I was like eight years old in the Domino's Pizza next to where I got guitar lessons. 
And it's just like, you know, I've been taken for a ride ever since. Nice. Well, we were all taken for a ride this weekend by Warner Brothers Pictures and their new movie, <laughs> Joker. How was that, Sean? That's just good. That's a good, that's a solid segue. Good job. Okay. Uh, I don't even know what to fucking say. I went to see this movie Friday afternoon. It made me sad. I don't think it made me sad in the way it was intended to. Because I don't know if this movie knows what it wanted to do other than to be dark and artsy and Scorsese-y. And that's pretty much it. It's just such a... I, I guess where I'll start, Sean, with Joker is... It doesn't want to be a Joker movie. Like, that's one of the biggest things to say about this movie, is it has no interest in the actual DC Comics character of the Joker, because this character isn't the Joker. He has nothing to do with the Joker. He is a dude in clown paint and green hair at the very end, and that's the only thing he has in common with the Joker. He also laughs. Lots of villains laugh. That's not a Joker-only thing. Um... You know, to me, when I think of the Joker, I think of a character who is scheming and coming up with big plans and is, like, taking pleasure in doing evil things and watching, like, the hero twist and all that stuff. But there is no hero in this movie, so there's no one for him to play off of, which seems pretty essential to the Joker. Uh, There's no big plan he ever has. There's no grand scheme. There's nothing Joker-esque in the way... Mark Hamill or Heath Ledger or Cesar Romero or Jack Nicholson or name your Joker. Anybody has played him. And I guess that could be fresh, but it's not because it's just not the character. It's just Travis Bickle with Tourette's. The Tourette's being that he has like a laughing condition. And then the plot of The King of Comedy. It doesn't want to be a comics movie. It doesn't care about these characters when it mentions the Wayne family or Gotham, it's just fucking distracting. And all the stuff they do with Thomas Wayne to like shove that in as a comics connection is just cloying and obnoxious. And so it is just Martin Scorsese fan art disguised in a comic books package so they could get their $60 million budget and get it in theaters. And there isn't enough filmmaking skill or intelligence in the script to actually pull that off in a way that might make it interesting. And that to me is like one kind of baseline I could start with, but there's so many other places I could go in. Um, you know, the the film's presentation of mental health is actively insulting to me because the whole plot, like I wrote this the other day, it feels like a... GOP talking point wet dream of what the mass killers today look like, which is that when, you know, someone picks up a gun and goes and kills 20 people in America, the GOP comes out and says, it's mental health. And then they suggest nothing about what to do with it. That's this movie. This movie is, why is the Joker crazy? Is it's mental health? It's mental health. He's, he's, he's insane. He went off his meds. He's insane and he went off his meds. And when crazy people go off their meds, they kill people, right? Fuck you, Todd Phillips. Fuck you all the way to hell. I am actively insulted every step of the way by what this movie does with mental health. It's unbelievably bad. Like, I can't believe it got out the door at Warner Brothers. It's so fucking insulting. The movie has significant issues, I think, with race. 
Um, the you know just to give you a, a little indication, the movie starts with the Joker character being assaulted by five black teenagers, and it ends with him killing a black woman. And in the middle, there's a lot of other really uncomfortable stuff that the movie has no fucking idea what to say with. I think it's so shallow in how it approaches like class conflict. This is very much a movie about class conflict made by a rich person who doesn't understand poor people. Um, it just there's I don't even what 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 are your th- you haven't seen the movie Sean, but I just mm-hmm. there's so many things that kind of irk me about this film. I don't even really know where to go. Yeah, I mean that is sort of been my impression from having heard about a lot of the stuff in the movie is it it seems like a movie that likes to gesture towards things without exploring them um which seemed to be like what you and I and I think most people probably kind of suspected based on the trailers was like oh it like it it knows the aesthetic of what it wants to look at but it doesn't know any of, like, the actual content that, like, lies beneath that. And that's, like, where the Scorsese thing is, is where, like, Scorsese has a specific aesthetic, but also Taxi Driver is really good at exploring its core ideas around Travis Bickle and how, and his, like, sort of role in society and what makes him terrifying. Um, And it sounds like Joker just sort of, like, copies that aesthetic, but kind of strips away any of the nuance that that lies underneath it. And so he's, like, evoking all these images without either being ignorant of where those image where the imagery comes from and what it signifies or just having no real interest in actually exploring it and diving into it or probably a combination of both of those things um and but the part to me like because all that is like sounds bad and but like lots of things do that and it's bad but like i could whatever the thing that just sounds like the like cringe inducing part of it to me sounds like the shit they do around like batman and thomas wayne and oh it's so bad yeah like that was the stuff that when i heard one of my when i like one of my students was talking to me about it before class and then they like offhandedly mention um like sort of one of the main things that seems to happen at the end of the movie uh and i was like why would they do why would they go here why would they why would they want to do this kind of wayne stuff um go that far into that side of the story instead of it just having be like vaguely set and there's like someone mentioned like thomas wayne is on tv in the background of a scene at one point and that's as far as you would need to go um i think if you want to do your joker origin movie and have it be mostly removed from core batman mythos stuff i think that you could totally do that because i don't think that the joker's origin story would have fuck all to do with anything related to batman at all like that's how it's usually depicted is they're totally separate things it's you know it's it's the way that like a lot of modern comic book stuff will just sort of take they'll take like a bunch of the recognizable things from a certain comic book franchise and just mash them together the way that we've talked about before with spider-man and how in modern spider-man stuff everything has to be connected to oscorp and norman osborne and the green goblin and all that has to come from the same place it sounds like joker does the same thing of for whatever reason these things these two events of what makes batman and what makes joker have to be intimately connected in a way this that doesn't actually have to be at all and is like poor usage of the source material and it feels just like very myopic usage of the source material that is not inspiring or interesting in any way yeah i mean one thing one way i've been trying to say this is that I think the movie either has no thesis, and that is annoying, or I find its thesis absolutely sickening. 
because the ultimate, if there is a thesis to the movie, and I think that might be giving it too much credit, but if there is a thesis, it is that this violence that Arthur Fleck, the main character, commits is not his fault. It's bad because society was mean to him. People didn't understand him. Women, black women, they made a very specific choice here. Black women didn't go on dates with him. And so it is society's fault. And society at the end of the film reaps what it has sown by ignoring people like Arthur Fleck. And he is triumphant in his criminality. That is the arc of the movie. And I have seen people try to explain it in other ways. And I just fundamentally feel like I am watching a different movie than them. When this movie has the Joker kill a dude with scissors and then like dance down the stairs, it's triumphant. He has found himself. When he kills three people near the beginning of the movie, that's the beginning of his arc of transformation where he starts having confidence and becomes happy and like... The end of the movie, I mean, they couldn't put a finer point on it. This movie has one of the worst lines of dialogue I have ever heard in a movie theater, and it is near the end where the Joker is confronting the Robert De Niro character, and he has this line where he says, what do you get when you cross a sad, you know, mentally ill loner with a society that doesn't fucking care about him, and then he fires a gun? And it's like, no, that's not how this fucking works. And I have been, I am 27 next week. The first news event in my life I remember is the Columbine school shootings yeah. near where I grew up. And I had to hear about, when I was a kid, all the way to today, about how the problem with Columbine is that, you know, those kids were bullied and we have a problem with our mental health and, and not being good to those kids and that's why they picked up a gun. And no! That's not what fucking happened. And that is still perpetuated about Columbine. Those kids were violent white nationalists who wanted, who like worshipped Hitler and shit. Like you can look this up. And they had easy access to weapons of mass destruction and they went to fucking town. It is not society's fault. It is not the fault of the other kids in school who weren't nice to them. People don't have this shit coming. And we have to hear that over and over again. And every year, the clearer it becomes that mass violence like this is driven more by ideology and hatred than it is by mental illness or society ignoring you people who are sad and feel ignored by society don't just pick up a gun out of the blue and go shoot people that just isn't how this works it is a toxic way of viewing this shit bringing the mental illness stuff into it and being so nondescript about it because nobody on earth has arthur fleck's actual set of symptoms that's just not a real person like it is such a caricature of people with different mental illnesses. At the midpoint of the movie, they bring child abuse into it, just so you can feel even ickier about this stupid fucking amoral movie. And I just, I can't tolerate more of this perpetuation that is all about the sleight of hand of getting us away from the actual problems we have with violence in our society. And I, this is such a conservative, inflected viewpoint of a film. And it is so self-important. It is all, everything it has that is even halfway decent is just aped from Martin Scorsese without any sense of what Scorsese actually did. Joaquin Phoenix is doing all these interesting things as an actor with no real sense of direction or a coherent character in the script to tie it together. I, I just, this is, this is kind of bottom of the barrel to me, at least in terms of like ideology 
and and what it's trying to say because this movie wants you to take it seriously it wants you to take it very seriously so i'm taking it seriously and this is what i thought Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah that's that's it also todd phillips is a fucking asshole just all the what a douchebag I hope that dude does not direct again. That, that that this has been such a fucking disaster of a marketing campaign for him. Um, he will. Joker made ninety five million dollars this weekend. Made made as much as Justice League did opening weekend, which is a fun stat. Um, but anyway, yeah. I uh, the one thing I liked in this movie, Sean. I mean, I, Walking Phoenix is very good. Somebody could make a movie out of Walking Phoenix's crazy laugh in this film. You could make a movie out of that. I don't think they've done it. Um, Martin script no, not Martin Scorsese. Sorry, uh, Robert De Niro plays the um, the talk show host in this, mm-hmm. sort of in a King of Comedy, re- not sort of one hundred percent in a King of Comedy reference. And the one thing I want out of this movie is there should absolutely be a two hour movie about Robert De Niro as an aging David Letterman style talk show host because he's so good at that. In like five minutes in this movie, I so wanted more of that. You wouldn't. Like, De Niro is kind of underrated as a comic actor, but he's very funny, and he totally feels like in another life he could be a Letterman or Carson-style guy. And so I want something like that. This movie didn't give it to me, obviously, but there you go. Interesting. Well, I will probably end up seeing that movie maybe next weekend, so we'll All right. we'll see how, how I my developed thoughts on it. Um, <sighs> yeah. But yeah, my, my suspicions is that my thoughts will not be too different from, from yours. I'm just tired, Sean. I'm just tired. It's it's just, I'm tired. I don't know. That's that's one thing I walked out of this movie feeling was I'm like, I'm tired of the discourse. I'm tired of the bullshit. I I don't know. Just let's put it all on hold for a little while. And I don't even know what all is. I just, I'm tired. (laughs) Well, don't worry. They'll probably somehow make Joker 2. So we'll we'll see what Uh, that is. The Birds of Prey trailer is good. Yes, that, that is a good trailer. That looks good. Um, did you see the Picard trailer out of New York City Comic Con? Um, yes. Yeah, the one that has uh, Riker in it. That looks so good. Yeah. They, they, Riker shows up and I teared up a little bit. That was, that was great. Anyway, let's go ahead, Sean. You want to do our topic? Yes, we should, we, should, we should get back to... Stop talking about bad movies and start talking about good TV shows. Let's do it. Uh, Sean, should we give the people a quick recap of our bottom five? Yes, because I was just thinking earlier that I couldn't remember some of the things that were on your list, or or I was getting them mixed up. So it would help remind me what is on both of our lists as well. All right, my number ten was Crazy Ex Girlfriend. That was the one I couldn't remember. Okay, there yes. we go. Musical show on the CW starring Rachel Bloom. Yes, my number ten is Jeopardy. My number nine is The Office with Steve Carell, The American Office. My number nine is the Granada Television Sherlock Holmes series, which ran from 1984 to 1994. My number eight is Vince Gilligan's Albuquerque Televisual Universe, a.k.a. Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Uh, I've actually just was watching some Breaking Bad this morning. I'm rewatching the last eight episodes before El Camino this week. Cool. And my number eight is Deadwood. My number seven is Star Trek The Next Generation, where Picard himself hails from. And my number seven is The Sopranos. My number six is Hannibal. 
and my the most number violent six violent show in network TV oh. history. Sorry. <laughs> yes, definitely the most violent show in network TV history. Fuck, I was watching a little bit of and like clips of Hannibal after the last podcast. Be like, oh right, yeah. I you it's I can't believe the show is on NBC. It's still the weirdest thing that has like happened in American television history. Um, my number six is a violent show, but not like that. My number six is Justified. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and see what's on our, our bottom five. Uh, Sean, do you want to go ahead and kick us off since I just ranted about Joker? Yes. So my number five TV show, um, strap in because this is going to be a long conversation because <laughs> nobody listening to this is going to know what the fucking TV show is. And I am the only person on the planet that would ever put this on a list with The Sopranos and Deadwood, and certainly the only person on the planet that would put it above The Sopranos. My number five is a Japanese show called Game Center CX. I like you, I wondered if you were going to have this when you said there might be more like Jeopardy. This is this is the mo- this is the already Sean. You've got four slots left. This is the weirdest list, and I fucking love it. Oh, it's yeah. So so Game Center CX was something that I'll do, like two years ago when we started saying like oh we'll eventually we'll do the TV show thing again. We did the movies. We're going to do video games. We'll do TV again. I was like okay in the back of my head formulating what my list would be game center cx was immediately going to be my number 10 slot because i was like oh that's a good number 10 in the same way that jeopardy is a good number 10 of like it's it's unconventional it's hard to rank next to a lot of the other stuff because it's not a dramatic tv show it's more of a kind of a variety thing so it's good just like kind of put it at number 10 don't worry about it kind of thing and so it was my number 10 for a long time and then, as often happens on this list, there's one thing at the bottom of the list early on that eventually just starts rising up um, until it gets much, much higher. And that is what Game Center CX was for me. For the people who have no idea what Game Center CX is, I think I've mentioned it offhand a couple of times on this podcast. Um, it's, it's probably most well-known on this podcast as being the reason why I watch the Japanese Nintendo YouTube channel. Because... Um, a lot of the stuff on the Japanese Nintendo YouTube channel is made by the Gascoin company and like features um, Arino, the main the guy from Game Center CX, and so they just kind of Nintendo kind of hired them to do stuff for them. These Sakurai videos um, that he does, where he plays um, the new DLC characters for Smash Brothers, and there's like people laughing in the background and joking around. That is the Gascoin company, like they're doing that as well. It's the same kind of format. So Game Center CX is a show that started in 2003. In Japan, um, the first season was about uh, Arino Shinya, who is a Japanese comedian who um, is well known for being like a nerdy guy and like likes video games. They they made a TV show with him where he went around and basically interviewed bit different um, major Japanese video game companies. And that's kind of what season one was. Was like here's the episode where he goes to like Koei Tecmo. Here's the episode where he goes to Konami. Here's the episode where he goes to Nintendo. Interviews people. Um, and then there would be one section of those episodes called Arino's Challenge, where he would take one game from that company's history and play through it and usually try to complete a specific challenge associated with that game um, and see if he could complete it or not. And so that's what season one was. And it was designed more as like a kind of Japanese video game history show. Um, and that's kind of where it was born from. And the show became unexpectedly popular in that first season. 
So then in 2004, it got renewed for a season two. But they realized that, oh, we can't really do that format for very long because there's only so many video game companies you can go to an interview. But people, everybody's favorite segment from the show is the part where Ardino the host plays through this weird old hard video game um, and, and jokes around about it. So let's take that and let's make that the TV show. And that's really where Game Center CX is born, is uh, in season two, the Ardino's Challenge segment becomes the primary focus of the show. And this is also basically where Let's Plays are born. Um, in 2004 in Japan, they made this the TV show with hour-long episodes where Ardino plays an old, usually very hard, kind of obscure um, retro game and has to see if he can complete it basically within about... No, it's not quite a full day. It's usually like 15 to 16 hours he has to try to beat the game, and it's all in one sitting. Sometimes they'll do multiple days if it's like an RPG or something, but the average episode is you have about a day to complete this game, and they film it and then edit it down into an hour-long episode. Um, and so if you were wondering like what the first thing was that did that kind of format, as far as I know, it's Game Center CX. Um, and nobody has ever done it better than the show. And this is um, this show is still ongoing. It is at season 23, I believe. Let me scroll down to the very, very long Wikipedia page here um, so I can get up to date. I was watching the, the Klonoa episode, which is episode 281 um, earlier today. I'm a little bit behind. They are at episode 286 where they did a three-part um, where he plays through Mother 2, better known as Earthbound over here. Um, so it's still going, you know, season, season 23 is still ongoing. How many um, seasons do they do a year? Um, it's, it's been, it's kind of inconsistent. Okay. I think there's, there've been like, there's been a gap somewhere and then there's, yeah, sometimes they do about two a year. Um, it's usually, let's see where they usually start. Um, <laughs> oh, they don't have the, okay. Yeah. No, so that's okay. Cause I was just 23 yes, seasons April. in 15 years is a. That's a good. That's a good workload right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it basically is like a new episode every two to three weeks. Um, yeah. Like the schedule has changed over the years because it's been ongoing for a very long time. Because I mean, yeah, it's been going since like the middle of the PS2 generation up till now. So it's covered a long, like the span of what is considered a retro game changed over the course of this show. So about halfway through the show, they like had a big thing where they're like. Now, like, PS1 and N64 games can be played on the show because the show has been going on so long that those are now retro games. It's not just Famicom and Super Famicom and, like, PC Engine games and, and, and stuff like that. That's um, awesome. That must be a hell of a library at this point of, like, important classic games that they've played through. Yes, and so that's one of the really fun things about this show um, is that if you are from the West, it is a really fascinating insight into Japanese video game history, which is not the same as ours. And they're like, even just very early on, um, he plays through some games like um, episode four is he plays through Konami YY World, which is a Famicom game that is like a big crossover of different Konami characters. And it's set up in like almost like a Mega Man thing of where you pick different stages. And then in those stages, you can find and rescue different Konami characters and then go back to other stages and use those characters to unlock other paths to try to get to the end of the game. And it's like... It 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 seems like it's like an all time classic Famicom game or something that just never came out over here. Um, and so I had never heard of it. I've never heard what anybody game was talk that? about Konami Y Y World. Um, W A I W A I World. 
Um, it is just it like as soon as I saw that in episode four, I'm like, what the fuck is this game? This seems amazing. Um, and there's so many fascinating, weird old games that Game Center CX will do. Um, some which are obscure even Japan. Some um that that are well known in Japan, like the Captain Tsubasa soccer games. They're based on a a soccer manga in Japan that are is super popular in Japan and I think uh, in South America, but never came out over here. And so you watch these, like, old, weird, like, soccer... It's like this soccer simulation RPG, and it's the most fascinating game, like, structurally I've I've ever seen. And it's, like, almost, like, turn-based, and it's so detailed, and it's just the kind of game you never get exposed to by following games media in the West. So that's one thing that's really fun about it. Um, But one of, like, the, the, the main pillars that make Game Center CX so good, and the reason why it's gone on so long is... One, they just hit on immediately, like, it is really fun to watch somebody funny play video games. Um, and they just figured that out about, like, 15 years before YouTube did. Um, and so, you know, that's fun. Um, but then also, Audino, the main, the host, I guess, um, who he kind of lightly plays a character called the Kacho, which um, Kacho is basically like like a like middle manager kind of ranking or like a position at a company, and so like the loose framing of the show is that Game Center CX is a company that has Audino play through these old games, and he is like this like weird middle manager of the company. Like that almost never comes up. That's more of a thing in the early seasons, and now it has just come like he wears like this kind of traditional Japanese like kind of work outfit. Um, that's kind of his outfit, and they call him the Kacho. That's kind of the only thing that's left of that premise, because but it's like a fun, weird detail that they have. So he's kind of very loosely playing a character. Um, but the thing that makes it so fun and, and separates it really heavily from the kind of the let's play tradition in the West, which comes a lot more out of stuff like Angry Video Game Nerd, is that Arino is never like cynical, and he's never like hard like he's never like negative about the game even when the game is bullshit and he plays some like real bullshit games it's this like attitude and mentality of like it's not the game that's supposed to that you're supposed to criticize it's audio kind of like criticizing himself and kind of like this kind of more self-defacing humor um and and he never kind of gets i mean he obviously he gets frustrated at the games but he never expresses that frustration he's not like throwing the controller and shouting and screaming and stuff um, when when something bad happens, the shouting and screaming happens when he like miraculously defeats a boss at like the last five minutes of the challenge, and you thought he would never be able to do it, and he wins, and you're like, holy shit, because he is terrible at playing these fucking games. He has been for 23 seasons. He's always just like, he's very good at the puzzle games, but they usually have him play action games, and so he's he's very bad at them, and so it's his play style is so like diligent and just like very thorough and it's like if he's going to have to just like jump on a fucking like koopa in super mario brothers 2 to get like infinite lives and he's gonna have to jump on that koopa for like an hour and use this trick he is just gonna do that for an hour and it's like that's you know if he has to grind in an rpg he's just gonna go grind like a motherfucker um and so it's this like diligence and perseverance that he has um that he kind of projects in his character and he has in his humor and never blaming the video game and always just trying to like overcome it i think is one of the things that makes it so fun and it makes it so that like the show can go on for so long because its core philosophy is so positive and not negative 
and that is much more kind of rich and long lasting and there's a lot more like there's a lot more material that can kind of be infinitely mined from that point of view versus you know the a lot of the western stuff like avgn and a lot of less play stuff in the west which it can be very funny but i think is much harder and i think the angry video game nerd ran into this at a certain point that's like it's a lot fucking harder to keep on doing that over and over and over and over again and find something new to do with it um and you know like game center cx has never run into that problem it is still great it is still funny because it has this much more positive outlook one of the other things that is so much fun about the show is it and this is another thing that it kind of hit on well before youtube started doing this is it brings the people making the show and like the production crew into the show and makes them kind of like active participants and so that's where that like the people who are the producers and stuff and the cameramen are all in the room with audino as he's playing the game watching him play the game so when something ridiculous happens they will shout and they will laugh and they kind of joke along with him and that creates this really fun kind of community experience where it feels like you're in the room with him and with everyone else making the show and so it kind of makes the audience feel like they are participatory in some way um within that atmosphere and then the main people behind the scenes making the show have been with the show the entire time. So people like um, Khan, who is the main producer, he has been with the show since season one. He's the main narrator, but he also fulfills a production role, like a producer role behind the scenes. And so he is on set um, with a microphone and he will, he's the one who will always like, if Arino goes up to the deadline, he'll be like, it's, it's time, hand him a, like a clock to, sh- to point to the camera that's like, oh, it's 11.30 or something at night. You have, this is your, like your last chance. You're on your last continue. Um, so he's been there since the beginning. You have people like the cameraman, Abe-san, who is this dope, like, former biker dude that has the full-up, like, greased-back hair. He's got, like, just, like, ripped biceps because he's holding the fucking camera all the time. Um, and he's been with the show since at least season two, maybe if not even season one. And he will, like, you know, they'll make jokes with him, and he'll shout things out in the middle of a challenge and stuff. And sometimes he'll come in front of the camera and play games, and he's been with the show the whole time. Um, and then you also have a this rolling cast of assistant directors that have this role of um, being the people who kind of have to scout out the games ahead of time and practice and figure out, okay, like Arduino's probably going to get stuck here. So let's come up with a set of tips that if he gets stuck on this level, we can come up with a fun like system that we can kind of use for the show that will be entertaining for how he can overcome this specific challenge. And so they um, usually cycle out of the show every year or two. Um, because they are just employed by um, the the broadcasting studio. So they will be shifted to other st- shows and stuff and eventually will graduate from Game Center CX. But that creates this fun dynamic of you ha- always have this role moving in and out that is like they will come in and kind of sit next to Audino and help him play the game when he gets stuck. Um, usually one of their main functions is to, if he's like at the last boss and then it keeps on losing at the last boss and has to play through the last level again because it's a fucking Famicom game, um, they will eventually start playing through that level and then hand off the controller to him once they get back to the point where the boss is. And so he creates a fun like kind of comedic repartee with each of them that come on. And then when they do big kind of special anniversary episodes, a lot of the assistant directors that moved on from the show will come back and do something fun with like the big live shows that they will do and stuff like that. Um, And that formula is so rich that the show has been entered. Like I have basically watched every episode at this point. Um, and, And it is a show that I like keep on coming back to and have been watching regularly for like three years, maybe four years at this point. Um, 
which this leads me to like how people can watch this show is um, one, the first, let's see, it's about, they're up to in the two mid 200s at this point, there is a fan subbing community called SADCCX. Um, and they have about like the first like two thirds or so of the episodes subbed. There are gaps here and there. Um, so if you don't speak Japanese, like that is the main way to watch it is go to um, SAGCC, SA-GCCX.com. And you can watch those episodes from there uh, because Game Center CX is a show that I started watching subbed and then was one of the first things that I made that transition of like, I think I'm good enough at Japanese at this point. I can just watch this show. And so I've been keeping up with it only on Japanese for like two years or something at this point because it was around the time that Persona 5 came out and I played that in Japanese is around the time I switched to watching Game Center, Game Center CX in Japanese. But there is also an official DVD release that came out in like forever ago. In 2011, um, they released a DVD collection called Retro Game Master, the Game Center CX collection. It's the only American release of any official release of any Game Center CX thing. And it has a good set of different um, episodes. It's got about a dozen episodes or so on it. Um, it it's, or it's got 14 episodes on it. They're, most of them are really good. He's got the Ninja Gaiden 1 and 2, which are all-time classic episodes. Um, Battle Golfer Yui is on here, which if you're talking about weird, old, Japanese, obscure games that are just bizarre, Battle Golfer Yui is a golfing RPG game um, where you like talk, where you play as a like golfing cyborg lady um, that you, you, um, can, you talk to your opponents before the golf game. It's got like a branching storyline. The ending to Battle Golfer Yui is an all-time video game ending. It is utterly bizarre. I don't even want to say it. People should just go on YouTube and type in Battle Golfer Yui ending or something and just get, find where you can find it on YouTube um, because it is fucking bizarre and is great. Or, or just watch this episode of Game Center CX because you just get to experience that game in real time with somebody else playing it and just to have them provide commentary like, what the fuck is happening? I cannot believe this game is ending this way. Battle Golfer Yui... Um, I would not be surprised to find out if um, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion was in some way inspired by the ending of Battle Golfer Yui. That's what I mean when that game is fucking weird. Um, but then this collection also has, and this is really like a great example of where Game Center CX is amazing. It has Mighty Bomb Jack, which is a very, very hard Famicom game that I think only came out in Japan. It's kind of like an action platformer game. And Mighty Bomb Jack, like, was the beginning of something that happens every once in a while in Game Center CX, where it's like the, it's like the beginning of this weird storyline that kind of crosses multiple episodes and culminates in this big live show, where it was, like, early on a game that, like, infamously Arino just could not fucking beat because it was so goddamn hard. And so it, like, crosses through multiple episodes of him just trying to beat this incredibly hard game culminating in one of their first big live shows that they then film and kind of cut into an episode of the show and him in front of like a massive audience of fans of the show desperately trying to beat this game that is just seems incredibly impossibly hard is so much fun to watch and again that sense of you being part of like this community audience watching and kind of participating in the show is so palpable there in every in the drama of the show of you rooting for Audino to finally be able to beat this goddamn game and um the what they the on the show they called the Kacho miracle that every once in a while just like he seems to have been able to accomplish something that seems utterly impossible and it's either it's usually through like complete and utter dumb luck that somehow he managed to beat this game that like 
you would never in a million years have would thought that he'd be able to do. And he usually ma- manages to pull it off in front of a massive, ridiculously huge uh, audience that you would never think a weird show like this would be able to pull in. And he's just like, I can't believe he beat this game. Like it is, it is those moments of, will he be able to do it or not? Because it is all real. Like it's not faked. Like he, there are multiple times where he just is not able to beat it. Whereas like, you know, the, I think he's never beaten punch out has been an ongoing thing. He's never been able to beat punch out. Um, and so multiple of these live shows have had him fail at punch out and they have to like put it on the back burner and be like, well, next time we go to a huge, ridiculous stage with a big live show, like we'll pull out punch out again and see if you can beat it. Um, but he, he is oftentimes more than you would expect able to just pull these really incredible dramatic wins out of nowhere. And that's what game center CX feels like to me is like this, this beautiful show celebrating the joy of playing video games and of watching video games and like the history of video games. And that doesn't even get into all the other fun segments they do on the show um, related to all that kind of stuff as well. But I've, I've talked about Game Center CX enough. It's a great show. People should watch it. If you don't know where to start, just pick up the Retro Game Master DVDs um, because they are they have some of the best early episodes on there. And if you watch those and are into it, then you're probably going to really like Game Center CX. And, and even if you don't speak Japanese, there are still a lot of episodes that you can find online, English subbed, um, fan subbed that you can you can enjoy like i did well that's awesome i could listen to you talk about this even longer because i'm enjoying this and and it sounds like something i really want to check out now so it does look like that dvd is very out of print from what i could tell oh Um, is it and a little hard to find so uh you might want to like maybe look at that episode list and find them online (laughs) yes yeah i would recommend mighty bomb jack um battle golf for yui and any of the ninja gaiden episodes are all good episodes to start with Excellent, because that was going to be my question, is where to start, and you answered it, so that's awesome. I think that is a cool pick. This is, this is such a crazy list you've got, Sean. I fucking love it. I, can't, I have a prediction of another out-of-left-field pick that I think you're going to have, and I'm excited to see if I'm right. Yeah, so. again, I, 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 you know, there are good, you're going to see a lot of like end-of-the-decade best, best TV shows of the 2000s and the Sopranos is probably going to be number one and Deadwood would be maybe number two or three. Um, but they're wrong. Game Center CX is better than both of those shows. <laughs> and, you know, it's outlived all of them. So it's got to be better. Very true. I also think it's funny, Sean, just surveying my list. You have more HBO shows on your list <laughs> than I do, which is no one would have predicted that. Yes. Um, all right. So should I move on to my number five? Yes, Jonathan. What is your number five? My number five is one that I think a lot of people don't even know I'm obsessed with, but I need to stress this show is absolutely defining of who I am as a person. I also think this is even funnier if you put it in context that my number six was Hannibal. My my number five is Gilmore Girls. If you're out. WB Network and the CW from 2000 to 2007, created by the great Amy Sherman Palladino, who has finally gotten Emmy validation in the last few years for the Amazon show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is also very good. But Gilmore Girls, you know, if you don't know about it, 
the the premise the the setup of Gilmore Girls is it is about Lorelai Gilmore played by Lauren Graham when she was 16 she got pregnant had a baby also named Lorelai but because that's confusing they call her Rory the show picks up when Rory is 16 and Lorelai is 32 Lorelai has been estranged from her very wealthy New England parents for a number of years. They live, um, Lorelai and Rory live in the small town of Stars Hollow in Connecticut. It's a fake town. It's just the WB backlot. I've been to Stars Hollow. I've been on the WB backlot. And it is just the WB backlot, which is part of kind of the magic of it. Um, and it's just kind of about their life in this small town. Rory's in high school. Eventually she goes to college. Uh, Lorelai works at, an, at a hotel and she wants to open an inn. Um, and you know, there are romances, uh, Lorelai has an on again, off again thing that lasts the whole series with the local diner owner, Luke, and Rory has all sorts of on and again, off again things. And the big start of the show in the pilot, which this show has one of the great TV pilots. If you've never seen it, that's the episode to start with. It's just the pilot, just watch the pilot. It's a great standalone thing as well. Um, and the pilot is Rory has been accepted to a very prestigious, uh, private school. Lorelai does not have the money for this, so she re-enters her parents' lives and asks them to pay for Rory's school and her parents, um, who are played by the great uh, Kelly Bishop and Edward Herman. Um, Edward Herman, who passed away a couple of years ago, sadly. Um, they say they will pay for Rory's school, but only if Lorelai and Rory start coming around regularly on Friday for dinner so they can be part of the family again. And so there is this family dynamic. There's a cross-generational dynamic. There is a class dynamic going on here and then it is also just a funny wonderful show with a big sprawling guest cast it is sort of i think the closest thing to a live action simpsons in terms of how vivid the show and the community is and all the characters who inhabit it and how it is larger than life it is kind of a live action cartoon in a lot of ways and how heightened it is but i had to have gilmore girls on this list because i've watched the entire thing twice I love it. In my heart of hearts, I think it expresses that I am both on the inside at the same time. I am a teenage girl in some sense, and I am also a disgruntled loner, small town diner owner who has a really big crush on Lauren Graham. I am both of those things, and Gilmore Girls captures all of that. It is also, of course, a unbelievably well-written show. Amy Sherman Palladino is known for her incredibly dense scripts Gilmore Girls would regularly have 80 or 90 page scripts for a 40 minute episode of television because there is so much dialogue and it is presented at such a high clip and she has such an interesting ear for character voices it is very heightened it is very stylized but it is so unique like Gilmore Girls to me is a show I've actually spent a lot of time watching while like playing a video game like both times I have fallen down the Stardew Valley rabbit hole first on my Mac and later on my Switch I would play Stardew Valley like in my lap on my computer or Switch and have Gilmore Girls on the TV and that works because Gilmore Girls is kind of like the great radio play for television because it's such a fast clip of dialogue like it has a lot of similarities to sort of classic screwball comedies like His Girl Friday and it is a very well done show visually I think for a 22 episode a year network you know TV show um, but it the dialogue is just so vivid the character voices are so vivid that it works even if you just aren't looking at it it is so fun to just listen to and it will be an eternal annoyance of mine and a great way you can explain sexism in media that 
Aaron Sorkin is the TV auteur from the late 90s and early 2000s who gets the credit for the fast-talking, dense script thing and won all the Emmys and stuff. When Amy Sherman Palladino resolutely, objectively did that better and did it better for much, much longer on Gilmore Girls. And I think, she, and she also was a regular director on the show, has an amazing directorial style. She is really good at these big, not super elaborate necessarily, but definitely long, long takes that are there for performative immersion. They are there to just get you into the world of the show and let the actors just perform it out loud in one long take. It's not necessarily about heavy visual panache or experimentation, which is what you get a lot today. Um, but she's really good at that. And the the way that Sherman Palladino is not spoken of in the same like register as Aaron Sorkin, despite, I think, doing most of the stylistic things he is known for doing better and he did and, and doing them at the same time, um, it's, it's probably because, one, just sexism, but also Gilmore Girls is not dressing itself up in the self-aggrandizing airs of politics or newsrooms or whatever else Aaron Sorkin thinks is very important institutions that TV shows should cover. Gilmore Girls is just a show about people. It's heightened people who talk and act in very heightened ways, but it's people who deal with pretty down-to-earth things. It is soapy at times. It is silly at times. It is... An hour-long comedy, I would say, but definitely, you know, with dramatic elements. Um, the show does have really meaty themes about the divides of generation and wealth, and I think some of that is really interesting, and it has more on its mind than it usually gets credit for. But it's also content to just be a warm, comforting blanket of a show, this dense little live-action world in this vibrant small town. And the show famously has some... Very interesting rough patches over the years, but I think for the most part, the show sustains itself through those just through the strength of the characters and the writing and the cast. The only time I really, I like, I love the first five seasons. I think season six is pretty rough. And then season seven is the one where Amy Sherman Palladino was fired because... It was a weird contractual dispute, so they fin they did the final season without her, and it is indeed very strange because it is such an auteur-driven like show to have the main voice taken out. Everybody basically talks for that last season at half speed. It's very weird, uh, although I don't hate the last season like some people do. There was a Netflix revival a couple years ago where Paladino came back and the original cast, and they got to finish the show, basically, and I like those Netflix episodes a lot. They're, they're really, really good. Um... But yeah, I, I love the characters. Lauren Graham is a phenomenal actress and will never have a better role than this. And it is just, she is so radiantly fantastic in this show. Um, the, the character Luke, played by Scott, some, I'm, oh my god, I'm, I should have looked this all up, but I'm forgetting his name. I love the character Luke. He's my, like my, my weird spirit animal of just disgruntled small town diner owner who's angry at the world. I totally get that. That's who I am on the inside, I think. Uh, Alexis Bledel never gets enough credit for Gilmore Girls. I think she's really good as Rory. I like Rory. Some people don't like Rory. I'm okay with Rory. Um, but she's really good, and I'm actually glad on The Handmaid's Tale she's finally gotten some acclaim as an actress, and that's cool. There's so many characters who I love in this show. I could list them forever, but we would be here for a while. Like I said, it definitely has that Simpsons-esque quality to it. Um, and it's just, when you're watching this show, it just feels like stepping into a slightly altered version of our own world and it is a warm, comforting blanket, and I love it. Um, and not a lot of other people I know love it, and that makes me sad, although it was a bonding moment between me and my stepsister, Hannah, 
when our parents got uh, married and I realized she also loved Gilmore Girls and we could talk about that. And that was very nice. Um, I did a couple years ago when the Netflix season came out, I did a four part top 20 list of my favorite episodes of the original series. And that is the least read thing on my website. I cannot stress enough how much nobody fucking read or like that is the thing I have put out in the world with the absolute least feedback in my life. But I'm still happy I wrote it because, you know, it was for me. Hey, you know, I, I like our number five is something where I, too, know nobody who has seen or knows anything about Game Center CX. So, you know, our yeah. number fives are very personal. I mean, Gilmore Girls did definitely have the Netflix effect where it went on, on up on Netflix again uh, a few years ago. And that is when it got kind of a new generation of fans. That's when I found the show. I'd always kind of heard about it. It went up on Netflix. I watched the pilot. I was hooked. And I have seen the whole thing twice through on Netflix. And then there was the Netflix season they did. Um, so it's very easily accessible. I think it will probably be getting pulled off Netflix soon. Because WB is doing that HBO Max service. So maybe watch it now. Or I don't, I don't fucking know. Pirate it if you want. I don't care. That's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's old. I mean, yeah, People everything's aren't... going to be off of Netflix soon. Because yes. everything, every, every, somehow we're going to end up in the place where it's like you have to spend... $5 a month just to subscribe to Gilmore Girls. And that's it. That's the only way you yeah. can watch any TV show is just to pay five fucking bucks to subscribe to it monthly. On one of my many different media hard drives I have, I did at one point just rent. I just checked out all of Gilmore Girls on DVD from the library mm-hmm. and ripped the whole thing and put it on a hard drive so that when it inevitably goes off Netflix, I will have it. That's also a great thing you can do. Libraries have lots of TV. Just rip the DVDs. It's fine. It's good. It's... It's it's also technically illegal, but it will make you feel better than piracy. <laughs> I, I have no, no such moral quandaries. Who, who, gives, <laughs> who gives a shit? I know who gives a shit. Um, yes, but I love Gilmore Girls. I love it so much. Uh, Paris on the show, she is the girl that Rory is is like Rory's accidental best friend, who's kind of a snooty, stuck up, rich girl. Is I hate to say it, the type of girl. I don't want to be attracted to, but M. And I learned definitely learned something about myself going through the show and watching that character. But that's a, that's a great character too. So who knows? This is a great show. I love it. I play Stardew Valley and I watch Gilmore Girls, and it's a little ritual. So there you go. There you go. All right. So that's my number five, Sean. What the hell is your number four? My number four best TV show of all time is The X Files. This is not probably not a surprising pick in any way. If you knew it had to come up at some point, I wasn't going to make a fucking list of TV shows and I'll put the goddamn X-Files on it. I'm a non-maniac. Um, so, yeah, you know, I've, I've talked about the X-Files a lot on this podcast. It is, it is one of my great loves of television. It always has been. Um, you know, it aired originally from 93 to 2002. So a lot of it was like me as a kid catching... Um, like season six to nine episodes of X-Files while they were airing. 
um, when I was probably too young to watch them. But, you know, that's that's how most of that stuff goes. Um, and then spending a lot of my life watching um, reruns of episodes of The X-Files until Netflix came out. And then it was that revelation of like, wait, what? You can just watch. You can just watch TV shows. You don't have to just like set a fucking calendar to it. You can just sit down and be like, I want to watch an episode of, an X- of The X-Files. I can just do that. And I can just do it in order. Um, so The X-Files was one of those shows when Netflix um, picked it up originally forever ago. Um, now I think it's on Amazon Prime if you want to do it streaming. Um, but it was hey, one Sean, of those where I... Yeah? You want to hear something sad? What? Let's just remember this was a Fox show. X-Files is owned by Disney now. Fuck. Which Shit. Me- which means long term, I'm guessing its streaming home will be Hulu. I don't think it's there yet. It was on Netflix, but that's probably where it will end up because that's where they're putting a lot of the Fox shows because Disney owns Hulu. Just, just, just letting everyone know. Yeah, the X Files—they could totally do a Mickey Mouse crossover now. Fuck. Well, you know, <laughs> to get Darren Morgan to write that episode. It could be pretty good. Um, but yeah, so I, it was one of those shows that I watched on on streaming and just sort of, you know, my what was originally my love of X Files from just catching weird one off episodes without a lot of context. Which, especially if you're you're picking up some of those mythology episodes completely out of order, those episodes are confusing enough when you watch like the show all the way through linearly. They are very confusing when you watch one from like season five and then the next one is one from like season two, and you're like, I don't know what's happening with the alien stuff. Um, but yeah, when I could watch it all the way through, what was my original love for it just like blossomed into like, you know, a full endearing fandom of the show that has continued since I was like 16 or something at this point. Um, I think about the X-Files a lot. It is a thing that just like is, is part of like how my brain works. I think it's one of the, I mean, it is the reason why I got control was I heard people talking about, oh, the control is a lot like the X-Files. And then I just saw like a brief image from one of uh, director Trench's weird videos from that game that are just completely done in the style of the opening credits of the X-Files. I'm like, well, I'm, okay, yeah. Now I, you, have put, you have pushed my button. Now I have to play this video game. And that video game is very good because of partially because of its like incredible reverence and influence from the X-Files. Um, I think the things that make the X-Files such a remarkable TV show and why it still holds up perfectly today is one, it is... For, like, when the show was great, which is, like, seasons one through seven, um, particularly, like, two through seven. One is a little bit spotty early on. Um, the show hits onto, like, the perfect structure for television. Um, it's, you know, no coincidence that some of our other favorite TV shows have the same kind of structure, which is you have a lot of one-off, you know, Monster of the Week episodes, which is where that term came from. Um, where this week they fight like the weird, my favorite example is always the homeowners association that where the dude has the voodoo ritual that summons a big swamp monster that goes and murders people that violate the rules of the homeowners association, which is maybe the Rex Files episodes I think of more than anything, because oftentimes in the, the summer we have to deal with bullshit homeowners association nonsense. And I just keep on thinking about how fucking laser honed that episode was on some somebody got some like one too many letters in their fucking mail about like having to fucking trim some goddamn bush and they're like i'm gonna just write an entire episode about this fucking horse shit because that episode is so precise it's the exact kind of frustration that dealing with a a nosy fucking home association brings you um 
But yeah, you have those one-off episodes like those that are fun and great on their own and just like it's a one-and-done, like tell their whole story. And then those are interspersed with um, your kind of big kind of like keystone episodes which build up larger mythology around um, the – for X-Files, it's like the alien invasion um, and the, the government conspiracy covering up that we have had contact with aliens. And then lots of like the kind of deeper character arc stuff and where character arcs will shift dramatically in these big kind of like landmark episodes. And, and X-Files was the show that really kind of like nailed that structure. And I think that that structure – is perfect for um, TV and perfect for episodic media of knowing that like you can have these bigger episodes where that are kind of your shifting points, but you want to have like your building blocks to be these like fundamentally standalone stories that can be just watched on reruns. And, and your TV show should be a show that you can fall in love with ideally just by watching one episode completely out of context from wherever. Like if you just randomly end up watching you know Clyde Bruckman's Last Repose without having any other context of the X-Files you will fall in love with that TV show because that episode is so good just entirely on its own and needs no additional context to make it function as a great episode of television and the X-Files just nailed that fucking structure it's um, so sad to me that it's not a thing anymore yeah like you cuz you and I both have a bunch of these on our lists like I Gilmore Girls is obviously it's it's serialized in the sense that their lives go forward but Episodes are episodes, and there's 22 of them a season. I talked about Star Trek TNG, you know, The Office. These are all, like, those those kind of network long-running shows where, yeah, you get duds. Obviously, you're making 22 episodes a year. They're not all going to be good. But especially with something like this, because I think the closest I have on my list is Star Trek. And just, yeah. like, being able to tell those individual stories, you'll get the duds. But without those duds, you also wouldn't get the masterpieces, you know? And, like... You know, there's a lot of great TV being made now, but now it's like the standard TV, you know, season length is eight to ten episodes, and it all has to be serialized, and the episode is a dying art, and it just, it does make me sad, because I don't know what in the current landscape would allow for another X-Files, or another TNG, or something like that, you know? Yeah, that that the the core style of television show, especially in the West, has moved so, so far away um, from from this dynamic, I think because it's like it's fucking hard to do. Um, and one of the, one of the things they nailed on with the X Files that makes it work is they got David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson to be Mulder and Scully, and those two characters form such a rock hard fucking spine for that show that even when you have a dud, you still want to watch it because you want to see Mulder and Scully. You, you want to follow these characters, even when, you know, again, the average episode of The X-Files is not going to have, like, huge, like, deep character moments that, like, reveal some deep fucking psychological backstory to why Scully is a certain way or something like that. Like, are, the average episode is not going to have those kind of character interactions. But even the lighter character interactions between those two characters and the ones that are sort of more emotional but are very much specifically geared towards the specific events of that episode and are not ever going to be referenced by another episode in the future, those character inter interactions can still be so rich because they just hit on... One, structurally the perfect dynamic for the show, which is having Mulder, who um, is too um, easy to believe in certain things, and Scully, who is too often too hard of a skeptic. And so having them bounce off of each other 
um, is just like the perfect dynamic for a show like this. Even if it ends up having Scully, because of the nature of the show, Scully is ultimately the one who 95% of the time is going to need to be wrong because while Mulder is going to be wrong, he's going to be like wrong because like he didn't carry the one or something. He's still going to be right that it's like some paranormal bullshit. Like, He's just probably wrong about what the paranormal bullshit is at the beginning of the episode. Scully's... Like, there are some times where she is right, but usually when you say, like, no, there's probably a logical explanation for this and it doesn't have to do with any supernatural nonsense. It's like, well, if we're on season seven, Scully, it probably does. It probably... It, it has for, like, 100-plus episodes up till now. It probably... There's probably some ghost bullshit. You just don't know what kind of ghost bullshit it is yet. Uh, did um, they ever just fully break the fourth wall, Sean? And in like the the, the recent like season eleven, finally just have David Duchovny turn to Juliet Anderson and be like, "Scully, come on, we're 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 on the fucking revival at this point. It's been two hundred plus episodes. We've done two Hollywood movies. Do you think they'd still be paying for this shit if it wasn't supernatural? What the fuck? I mean, they've gotten close because I mean, because the X Files has done like weird like awesome weird experimental kind of episodes where they have they have broken the fourth wall um in episodes before they've done like you know there's multiple different Rashomon style episodes like one of the best being Bad Blood which I believe that's one of the Vince Gilligan episodes so if you're a big fan of Breaking Bad and the Vince Gilligan Albuquerque televisual universe is that what you're calling it yep yeah the Vigatu if you're if you're a fan of that like X-Files is where he like really cut his teeth um and a lot of his episodes are great um, because he's one of the writers that came in at kind of the middle point of the show, wrote some some fantastic episodes. Um, and he credits the X Files all the time as being just a great writer's room and and learned everything he knows. It's it's if you listen to like the Breaking Bad podcast, you also wind up getting a lot of great X Files and then the Lone Gunman trivia. Yes, yeah, um, the Lone Gunman being a a very fun set of supporting characters from the X Files. Um, that yeah, that Vince Gilligan wrote some episodes for. Um, but yeah, it's just that, that core formula of having those two characters bounce off of each other. And then of course, having it just be that like unique, um, you know, one in a million thing of having David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson being those, that kind of pairing of actors that just have that like palpable chemistry concept more so than probably any other two actors I've ever seen still to this point. I think this is true that I don't think I've ever seen anybody else manage to replicate the kind of like just like powerful on-screen relationship that that Duchovny and Anderson had in the X-Files and still have like even with you know the two revival seasons are very mixed bag kind of seasons but even in those bad episodes Duchovny and Anderson are fucking great and they're just you can just have those two people stand on camera next to each other and it's just fun to look at that um but the but yeah, like that, that dynamic is so powerful. And then this is also where my like lifelong enduring crush on Gillian Anderson, um, <laughs> obviously originated. Um, it has, it has never subsided. It was, you know, Hannibal is a great TV show. My favorite part of Hannibal is Gillian Anderson because she's Gillian Anderson and holy shit. Um, and somehow every year Gillian Anderson ages, she looks more like a radiant goddess. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, she's she's perfect and amazing, and I love her. Um, and and that that started on on the X Files, and, and it is just, it's you know, it's really true, Sean. You know, ninety nine point nine percent of TV shows fail out of the gate. Most of them, if they're ordered, don't even make it to pilot. If they make it to pilot, they don't even make it to series. If they make it to series, they don't make it past thirteen episodes, right? Yeah. And the the ones that succeed, especially on a big scale, like 
the X-Files or Star Trek or Gilmore Girls or any of these we're talking about, the, the long-term kind of hits that we don't really get anymore, it's about that lightning in a bottle. Like that, you know, think of what a coincidence it must have cosmically been to get Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny on tape in the same room at the same time to make the X-Files. Because if you didn't have one or the other, you wouldn't have it, right? Yeah. And that's, and, you know, if they hadn't gotten the audition tape from Patrick Stewart for TNG, there'd be no TNG. Like there's so many... It is amazing when you look at that. Like there, they are. There are these like cosmic coincidences and lightning in a bottle magic that make so many of these things work. Yep. And in the, in the other like you know main piece of it is like the writers. Um, and like there's so many just incredible individual episodes of the X Files. Just shout out a couple of them are um all of the Darren Morgan episodes are classics. Like he's he's also the the writer who when they brought back the show for the two revived seasons um, from 2016 and 2018. His two episodes are the best episodes of those seasons. They're like essential episodes of the X-Files. Um, it's the, what, Mulder and Scully meet the werewolf. I'm trying to remember what the other, the title of the other one. The other one is the, uh, the Lost Art of Forehead Sweat. That's right. Um, which is an episode dealing with like the, the Mandela effect, but also is like, you know, one of the, it's an episode that like hits on like a certain element of like Trumpism and the like willingness to believe things that are obviously not true and ignore facts. Um, that that episode is all about those. So those two episodes, like if you were, you don't need to watch uh, like much from the two revived seasons, but if you even are just a casual fan of the X Files, you owe it to yourself to seek those two episodes out because they're great. Um, then of course you have Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. Um, which is probably the best episode of the X-Files. It's from season three. Um, it's the episode that um, guest stars Peter Boyle as Clyde Bruckman. And he has he's a man, an old man who has the ability to see um, how people are going to die. And it's just this very somber um, kind of character study of him and um, the way that Mulder and Scully kind of change through their relationship with him. And, and it's... You know, the the like, oh, I'm a psychic who can see the way that people die. Like, that is a very common sort of subgenre of paranormal fiction. Um, but I don't think anything has ever, like, hit that, like, the the sort of bittersweetness of that kind of power quite as hard as Clyde Bruckman's uh, Final Repose. And then also you have Jose Chung's From Outer Space, which is easily the funniest episode of The X-Files. Um, I... The best part of that episode is the part where um, they have what well, is this, sort of this recurring gag where they have um, the wrestler uh, Jesse Ventura who come in and play a man in black type character um, because that whole episode is about like this one dude like telling this story. Um, and so the, the story is very much from his perspective. So things are heightened and made ridiculous because it's the way that he perceived them. Um, and, and Jesse Ventura's role as this man in, man in black who's like denying everything that's happened and saying that everything's a weather balloon is fucking hilarious. But then they go back to that gag and it's Jesse Ventura. And then it's also fucking Alex Trebek from Jeopardy playing a man in black um, because the guy said, oh, and he looked like Alex Trebek. And then it cuts to just Alex Trebek wearing like a man in black outfit. It's so, so fucking funny. Um, and, and that's maybe ultimately the thing I love most about the X-Files is that it could do any genre. Um, it, ha it did what I think is still the most horrifying episode of TV I've ever seen in Home, which is just like this, the episode that like barely could air. Um, and like once it aired, it <laughs> didn't air again, basically, because um, it is just fucking horrifying, but in a very like powerful way. Um, and you have like um, the the postmodern Prometheus, which is a funny episode that's entirely in black and white and deals like Frankenstein stuff. It's a show that like once it got big, it knew it could do whatever the fuck it wanted because 
it just like everybody loved the X-Files. And once it got that kind of power, it would do whatever the fuck it wanted. So it'll have some of the best dramatic episodes of TV, some of the scariest episodes of TV, some of the most thoughtful um, character explorations like the uh, baseball episode, which was written by David Duchovny, which is great. Um, and then it'll have some of the funniest pieces of TV you'll ever see, like Bad Blood or Jose Chung's From Outer Space. Um, you know, The X-Files is probably of any TV show on my list. It is like the most pure TV show TV show I have ever seen. And it like exemplifies the best parts of what television could do. Um, and, and, you know, and as you said earlier, like that does mean that there are duds. And obviously like the last two seasons of The X-Files are very up and down. I probably like season nine more than most people do, but it's not, you know, it's not as good as The X-Files was when it's in its height. Their vibe season, both of the vibe seasons have a couple of just like awful, awful episodes, but the individual episodes that shine, shine so brightly that like the, the duds do not matter to me in the slightest, um, because the, those are a very, very small price to pay when you look at the like incredible bounty of just incredible classic episodes of television that the X-Files produced. And it is going to continue to be for me like a core reference point in my enjoyment of media in particular, like science fiction and horror um, that the X-Files just kind of like epitomized for um, the nineties and early two thousands. Wonderful. Um, going from the, massive tv-esque sprawl of the x-files to my number four is interesting because my number four is the shortest show on my list it's probably shorter than any show on your list because it's only 28 episodes long and that is hbo's masterpiece the leftovers everybody is wondering what and where they all came from Everybody's worrying about where they're gonna go when the whole thing's done. But no one knows for certain, and so it's all the same to me. Think out, just let the mystery be. Some say once gone, you're gone forever, and some say you're gone. Based on a book by Tom Parada, the TV show created by Parada and primarily Damon Lindelof. Damon Lindelof, who is best known for his work on ABC's Lost, which is not on my top ten. Lost is definitely, if I were making a list of my ten most formative shows, Lost would 100% be on there because Lost was really key to my work Like as a blogger. I blogged all of the last three seasons of Lost, and I think some of season three as well, so maybe the last three and a half. Um, I wrote about that show obsessively. I watched that show every week. It was It was a big evolving moment for me and I still love Lost I have not really gone back to it this decade and and someday I would like to and and revisit what the hell that crazy show was but The Leftovers is I think to me the best of what Lindelof brought to Lost which is the humanity and the exploration of faith and spirituality and philosophy um, and also the penchant for experimentation and humor and and some zany left turns um mixed with something you know very real and tight and precise and it is this beautiful perfect little three season run if you don't know the story uh behind the leftovers the premise is that uh one random day in i think 2014 is when the show starts because i think that's when it started airing yeah it was 2014 to 2017 um there is an event called the Sudden Departure, which is where just suddenly one day, half of all life on Earth 
just disappears. And it is basically a rapture event, but a completely silent rapture. Just at a certain moment, half of all humanity is gone, and the leftovers picks up three years after that incident, and it is just about people picking up the pieces of a life that no longer makes sense on a fundamental level. So the first season is set in this um, sort of small New York suburb town, and it follows the chief of police there, who is played by Justin Thoreau, and basically his family, um, his wife, um, his daughter, and his son, sort of in different places. Um, and then it also, a couple episodes into that season, it brings in a character named, played by Carrie Coon, who this was like her breakout performance and is amazing on this show, playing a character named Nora Durst, um, and her brother, Matt Jameson, um, who is played by Chris Eccleston, the ninth doctor who maybe we'll talk about later um and chris eccleston is a local pastor and that's kind of uh, those there's those those two families and then there is also a group called the guilty remnant which is this sort of cult that has sprung up basically built around nihilism since the sudden departure and they wear white robes and smoke and just try to preach how meaningless life is and basically that first season is just a character study in this small town as everybody is on edge and hurting and tense the action moves in season two, where the um, Garvey family, the, the main family, um, Justin Thoreau's family, along with Carrie Coon and Matt Jameson's, uh, with Nora Durst and Matt Jameson, move to a, a town in um, Texas. It's They shot it in Austin, but the town is called Miracle. It was renamed because it was the one town on Earth that was completely untouched by the sudden departure. And the second season is, and probably the best season of The Leftovers in a lot of ways, is set in that town um, and brings in another family. Um, Regina King is the mother of that family, and there's some great actors there, and it is about what's going on in Miracle. And then the third season predominantly takes place in Australia, and if I tried to tell you the sequence of events that brings all the characters down to Australia, we'd be here all day because it's fucking insane. Um, but it's amazing. At one point it involves a nuke going off because a dude uh, gets naked on a ship and does this weird acrobatics to set off a nuke it's very crazy the show gets very weird at points um but that is kind of the general outline of the three seasons of this show um i will talk about the show's general weirdness and experimentation because i love it and it's amazing and we can get there but i think the first and most important thing to say about the leftovers is that i don't think there is any better show that captures what it feels like to be alive right now in the world than this to be alive in a time when just things have stopped making sense when everything kind of hurts. What do you do? Um, and I think you can narrow that down to individual trauma. I think this is a show that if you have had significant loss in your life will be incredibly cathartic and meaningful to you. But it is also about societal trauma. And I think you can look at just the state the world is in today um, you know, for instance, the, the first season, the pilot was directed by Peter Berg, who also did um, Friday Night Lights and stuff like that. And apparently Peter Berg and David Lindelof, before they shot the pilot, went to Newtown, Connecticut, where there was the shooting that killed um, 20 small children in an elementary school and just kind of spent some time in that town around a community that was so broken by a trauma that we can barely even imagine. And that is kind of what created the emotional tenor of the first season of The Leftovers. And I think it's that kind of societal trauma that we live through and the way the world keeps getting crazier and sadder that The Leftovers is sort of about. It is this 
high sci-fi premise of like this sudden departure but it is not a science fiction show like that's really key to understand if you're going to watch the leftovers like lost also skirted this line and lost really did declare itself a science fiction show at a certain point when they started time traveling and shit but like the leftovers isn't it is a very down-to-earth show just like you never find out why the sudden departure happened they never even really ask. It's, it's not about that. It is about living in the aftermath of this trauma. And it is so raw and brutal in its emotionality. Um, this often winds up being a difficult show to recommend to people. Because the first season... Some people say the first season is bad and then it gets better. Those people are emphatically wrong. You could be, not be more wrong about anything. The first season is phenomenal. But it is really heavy. The first season has less like tonal variance. And I think part of that is just the closeness to the event. The first season is extremely dark and sad and heavy. And in seasons two and three, I think what elevates The Leftovers from being one really good season to a all-time great TV show is what seasons two and three do to mix up the tone, move the characters into new places, experiment with form and style and story. So you can have... There are multiple episodes where Justin Thoreau's character straight up visits the afterlife. Um, it, 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 it's, it's unclear whether that's a hallucination or the after, actual afterlife, but some very crazy things happen there. There's an episode called International Assassin where he is trying to get rid of a hallucination he has. So he kills himself or for temporarily stops his heart, visits the afterlife, and is tasked with becoming an international assassin and killing this like spectral projection so he can finish things off. And if that's not weird enough, in the following episode, he gets sent back there and has to sing karaoke to get out. And some of that is very funny. Some of those episodes is unbelievably wrenching and emotional. The karaoke scene fucks me the fuck up. Um... And it is, it's, it's just the way it broadens its emotional palette. Um, every season has one episode that is focused on the Chris Eccleston character, the Matt Jameson character. And it's a, those three are probably my favorite episodes of The Leftovers. It's a trilogy of episodes, sort of one each season that is about something crazy that happens to him. The, the, my favorite episode of the whole show is season one, episode three. It's the first Chris Eccleston episode and it's called Two Boats and a Helicopter. And it's basically about... Um, Matt Jameson as a modern day Job and sort of this Job-like series of catastrophes that rain down upon his life as he tries to persevere and he's just, in that episode he is trying to get enough money to save his church from being foreclosed upon uh, and he does not succeed. But that is a perfect perfect episode of television. There is an episode in season two that I think is called No Room at the Inn that is also a, an increasingly ridiculous Job-like series of events that ends with Chris Eccleston having a um, full frontal nude scene where he gets into one of those, what do you call it? Like it's the old style medieval torture device where they put your head and hands in it. Oh, the stocks? Yeah, the stocks. It ends with him full frontal nude in one of those. And then season three, there's an episode called It's a Matt, 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 Matt World. But most people call it the Lion Sex Boat episode because it's where he's trying to get to Australia on a cruise ship because a nuke went off. And it is a sex orgy boat, but there's also a dude with a lion. And there's the ending punchline of that episode is one of the best punchlines in TV history. You have to see it to believe it. So the Chris Eccleston character and that performance is probably my favorite section of The Leftovers. Um, 
but I I love all of it. Um, seasons two and three are really the the most masterful material in the show. It's got an all time great finale. I think. Um, you know I love this show. I have talked about it many times on this podcast. I will talk about it many times again. And you can tell on Twitter the people who have seen The Leftovers versus the people who haven't by how snarky they are about the upcoming Watchmen show. Because if you're one of those people, if you see someone online being like, this stupid fucking Watchmen show will never work. These people are idiots. Those people have not seen The Leftovers because it is primarily Leftovers people making that. And I agree. The idea of a Watchmen TV show is bad. I would, uh, you will have egg on your face, I feel like, if you count these people out, is all I will say. Um, Yeah, I love this show so, 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 so much. Um, It was really hard to know kind of where to rank it for me, because as I said, my top three were my top three. It was very easy for me to find those top three, and then the rest of them were tough to rank. And ultimately, I just kind of put the leftovers next to every other show, and it's like, what show am I sort of happiest to have found and have in my life? And this is one that, you know, in in capturing the nonsensicality and the the brutal trauma of grief, I think it 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 is a show that is good to have in your life. Um, it helps you process things. And it is also just a, a masterful, masterful television show. So there you go. That's my number four, the leftovers. Awesome. At some point I'll I will get around to um diving into what sounds like an incredibly depressing dark TV show. Incredibly depressing and dark, but I need to stress that once you get past season one, there is also like, there's there's a level that the art, I think, elevates itself to in both tonal variety and like visual experimentation and stuff, that it is definitely dark and heavy, but I think it provides similar pleasures as, say, a Twin Peaks or a Hannibal in terms of how it puts the world in a different viewpoint. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, and it's also just, it's, the show moves from being just grieving catharsis to just general emotional catharsis in a way that i think it has a very uplifting ending so i would yeah i wouldn't be too scared of it yeah i just well i feel like i've i've, I've been waiting to be in the right headspace to start watching season one at the very least like i've, I've had like that one like on yeah. my on my list and just i feel like while i'm in my first year in the middle of teaching like there was a moment a, like a month or so ago where i saw like should I start watching the leftovers? And then like, I, I almost pulled the trigger. I'm like, I don't think I, I, I'm too stressed out right now. I'm just going to watch some anime. The pilot is, is brutal. So what, like if you can get through the pilot and feel like I can watch more of this, you can get through season one, but the pilot is definitely a good litmus test. Um, it's, it's where I would start. So there you go. That's my, that's my number four. I think I know what your last three are, Sean. If you if you know what my number three is, then you can probably guess what my my first two are going to be. Yep. We're moving into the top three, and my number three is a, a show that I think everyone would agree. Everyone put the show in their list for the top three. It's it's a show that everybody has seen. Um, hailing from China, the year nineteen ninety four, the CCTV adaptation of the greatest novel of all time, Romance of the Three Kingdoms. TV 
show we've all watched, right, Jonathan? It's so just easy to to just get access to. You just watch this TV show. I knew you would have this on there. <laughs> I remembered it because it's such a yeah. This is the only show on this list that you had to import a very obscure DVD from Hong Kong for, right? Yes. So so this is a show um, obviously made in in China in in 1994. It is 84 episodes long. Um, and the only way I managed to watch it, you could probably pirate it online, but like my brief attempts to back when I was reading Romance of Three Kingdoms, when I heard about this, well, heard about it, I, I sort of stumbled on it online when I was researching Romance of Three Kingdoms stuff and said like, oh, it seems like people really like this TV show. I would, I would, I'll watch some of this and then had a hard time finding any way to see it and then just stumbled into, um, a, the only release of this movie that exists that has English subtitles, which the it is the most inconsistently subtitled thing I have ever watched. It basically feels like every single episode was not only subtitled by somebody different, but subtitled by different people that had completely different philosophies and instructions on how to subtitle something to the point where like the what names you refer to specific people by changes episode from episode in the subtitles because China, like many Asian cultures, have multiple different ways of addressing based on like familiarity and stuff like that. And usually translators just pick like the core main one and just only use that. Um, the, the DVD release of Romance Three Kingdoms is not so consistent. So it is definitely, it is... If you do not speak Chinese, which I do not, it is not a, an easy thing to get access to, but I did manage to stumble into getting that DVD set, which other than the weird subtitles is a fucking awesome DVD set and it is gorgeous looking. Um, it has, you know, it, it's all DVD, so it's not like the most incredible looking TV show, but, but it is a nice, nice set. And it is a just incredible TV show. Like it's an, it's a remarkable undertaking in the first place to adapt Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is a massive, sprawling historical novel, which tells the events of um, Chinese history from um, the late 100s, the late 2nd century to the early 3rd century, basically, um, in this massive conflict that saw the fall of the Han um, dynasty and then the power of China splitting ultimately into three, three different fact factions, Wu, Wei, and Shu, um, the, the eponymous three kingdoms, and then those factions sort of falling in disarray, and then eventually a fourth faction rising up and taking over and consolidating power. Um, and, and that's sort of the, the overall story of Romance of the Three Kingdoms. And since it is based in actual Chinese history with a lot of sort of fictional embellishment, it has a certain quality to it that no other piece of fiction... I've ever encountered has had um this is like if you know if you listen to, to our game of thrones podcast i was constantly talking about romance of the three kingdoms because i think a game of thrones appeals to a certain kind of like historical veracity um that romance of the three kingdoms by its very nature as a project project had um that game of thrones gestures towards but can never actually achieve um which like i don't think any piece of pure fiction would ever be able to achieve uh and you know, romance of the, if you're you're into stories where lots of characters die, Romance of the Three Kingdoms is a story where every single major character dies at some point over the course of that story because the story takes place over the course of over a hundred years. So of course everybody dies, whether they are you know cut down in the middle of a dramatic battle or they slowly or they just get ill and they slowly age to death. Um, and so the TV show adaptation is really remarkable because. They, they do one thing that is super smart, which is they find really sort of major points in the story and kind of consolidate different sections together to create, to kind of craft episodes. 
because one things that one of the things that makes Romance of the Three Kingdoms such a remarkable book is it has one of the most powerful authoritative narrative perspectives I've ever seen. You are always 100% aware of where you are and what you are looking at and what is being sort of um, conveyed to you. But like the narrative perspective of Romance of the Three Kingdoms will move rapidly from talking about this one small group of people like on the far eastern section of China to all of a sudden in like the next paragraph we are talking about something that is happening like deep in the south of China like below the, the Yangtze River and then we'll be talking about like something that some poet wrote in like the 13th century about this character over in the northwest and you're like it is moving around so rapidly and like the all-seeing eye of the narrative voice of Romance of the Three Kingdoms is incredibly powerful and one of like the best things about that book, one of the most remarkable things about it in terms of literature, which is something that makes it then incredibly hard to adapt to something else. And Romance of the Three Kingdoms, the TV show, um, knows exactly where to sort of make small cuts and where to consolidate to craft really focused, powerful individual episodes of TV. And so just as an episodic TV show, it's incredibly effective. And it's just a really fun show to watch just on that regard. So you're saying if this were adapted by the Game of Thrones people, it would be switching location every three minutes. Yes, exactly. It It is the thing that like is, I think... I probably would have enjoyed Game of Thrones much more if I had not seen this show and seen, oh, here's this incredible sprawling narrative that has a cast of characters that would make Game of Thrones feel ashamed for claiming that it has a large cast of characters because you ain't got shit. You ain't got shit on Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Um, and it takes that massive sprawl and finds key means and like a key lens through which to focus it for each individual episode. Which then makes it so it's like I can talk about what are some of my favorite episodes of Romance of Three Kingdoms because it has strong individual episodes. Like one of my favorites is episode 30 titled Arguing with the Confucian Scholars, um, which is what that episode is. Um, it is Juge Liang, who is the best character from the story. He is uh, the strategist and like kind of masterful tactician that uh, Liu Bei, who's kind of like the hero, most heroic of the main figures, high kind of like discovers Juge Liang in the forest and sort of realizes, oh, this guy is a true genius. I need him on my side if I want to um, bring the Han dynasty back to glory. And so he, he gets this Juge Liang dude and he's great. Um, and then eventually Juge Liang goes down to um, Wei in the south and uh, makes sort of like parlay and to, to create a alliance between Liu Bei and the people of the south. Uh, and so the, and this is where like the Red Cliffs battle happens, which is probably the most famous section of uh, the 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 story in the historical battle that a lot of movies are based off of, like the Red Cliffs movie. Um, and so in that the sequence, Juge Liang goes down and he basically, in order to sort of like gain the confidence of uh, Sun Quan, who's the leader, Sun Qian, who's the leader down there, um, he needs to kind of go through this gauntlet of this debate with all the different scholars of that kingdom. And so the whole, almost the entire episode is set entirely in this one room um, with where Juge Liang basically has to move through the room. He introduces himself to all the different Confucian scholars there, who are all these like stuffy academic types that um, argue, like think that, that Juge Liang is this like young whippersnapper that knows nothing. So he kind of introduces himself to all of them, and then they go move back through the room, and all the scholars present their argument for why it is a bad idea for them to be allied together, and why like this plan is going to fail. Juge Liang hears everything they have to say, and then he moves back through the room a third time and refutes all of their points individually until he constructs the overall argument for why this alliance will be fruitful and successful using um like logic and sort of like the like confucian method 
method to convince all these scholars to be on his side. And it's, you know, it's that thing where in the year 2019, where it feels like logic and reasoning have no power to sway anybody. It is an incredible power fantasy of this idea that like sheer, like purely through the power of logic and rhetoric, Jiggly Liang was able to convince all these people that even though they hate Jiggly Liang, they, they think that Jiggly Liang is a piece of shit. They don't want to work with him at all. They, the logic is so airtight that they, ha- they cannot say anything. And so they're all frustrated and nobody's satisfied with it, but everyone is now going to go along with this plan because they can't think of a single thing to retort um, all the points that Zhu Liang made. And that is like that entire episode is just that. And it's falling through that scene and the way that their, their direction and the like blocking of characters. It's an incredible example of using character blocking to communicate story information because there's so much dense stuff that is happening in that scene that you can honestly probably watch that scene without... Um, the subtitles and be able to like not understand the content of what is being said, but like the emotional arc of that episode would still be conveyed effectively through like the dramatic staging of what you're seeing and the way that the actors like body language communicates um, the emotions of the scene that I think you would be able to watch that whole episode without understanding what's being said and still be entertained by it because romance of the three kingdoms is not just like a great story. The TV show is incredibly well-made, well-produced and really well-directed. Um, and phenomenally well acted like all the actors from top to bottom are incredible with I think the star performance being Tong Guo Zhang as Juge Liang um, he was like one of the main characters that lasts throughout most of the show um, one of the other my other favorite episodes is another Juge Liang episode is episode 71 called the empty fort strategy and this is the episode that if you just um, look it up on YouTube you can find the core clip from this episode and I think probably like understand why I like this show so much and just how well made it is because I have seen multiple different adaptations try to do this story which is Julie Leong using the empty fort strategy to trick Suma Yi who Suma Yi is one of like this really powerful general that comes up in the end part of the story he's kind of he gives kind of like birth to the faction that ultimately wins the struggle of Romance of the Three Kingdoms. And so in the latter part of the story, Zhuge Liang is kind of on his own. He is kind of desperately still trying to fight and wage these campaigns into Wu. And um, sort of even though his master Liu Bei has died at this point, Zhuge Liang is still kind of carrying that torch and trying to follow his master's will, um, even though he knows he's fighting a losing battle. And so he's trying to retreat from the front and kind of consolidate his supplies And while that is happening, he is at the front at a fort that is empty. He has no army, no soldiers, nothing. It's like him and a couple of merchants and like people to carry supplies back towards Shu so that they can consolidate their forces. And that's when Suma Yi and his army ride up on Zhuge Liang's position, finding him like effectively defenseless. But they don't know what situation Zhuge Liang is in. And so Zhuge comes up with a plan which is he's going to, he knows that Suma Yi knows Juge's reputation. He knows that Juge Liang is the most feared strategist and tactician in all of China. And so Suma Yi holds an incredible respect and fear for Juge Liang. So Juge goes up to the top of the fortress and sits on the top of the wall where everyone can see him with, um, I forget what the name of the instrument is, but it's like this Chinese string instrument that he lays on his lap and he starts playing the song. Um, and it's an instrumental version of Julia Liang's theme, which is a very beautiful song. And they have him play it 
um, sort of diegetically of the scene. And Sumayi is sitting there and listening to Jiga Liang play this music. And Sumayi's sons, who are his other generals, are like, come on, father, let's go attack. We have to attack right now. And Sumayi says, wait, no, this, is, this isn't just any random general. This is Jiga Liang. He is like the man who won this battle and this battle and this battle. This is the guy who like took this castle without losing a single soldier. We can't just rush into this. And he says, you can hear like music played by a true master betrays the heart of that person's or like the soul of that person's heart you get insight into what they're thinking Zhuge Liang is is a true academic he's a virtuoso we by listening to this music we can understand his intentions and like if the music plays clearly and beautifully that means that Zhuge Liang must have some tactic some strategy that he is calm and confident and cool but if we we sense and we're like you can hear any sort of hesitation in the music that means that this is a bluff and we can attack um, so they sit there listening to the music and the intercutting between Julia Leong, who we know is bluffing and you're deep, like close up on him and Tang Guozhang, the actor is like sweating. Um, but he's like, even while he's sweating, he is still playing beautifully. And Suma Yi and his sons listening to the music and it's in the way the music is played and the cutting back and forth. And then eventually at the very end of the scene, it's building to the crescendo and Julia Leong plucks a string and he, the string snaps and Zhuge Liang looks up and, and he's like, did it, have we, has it worked? Have I just given away the game? And Sumi moves forward a bit, hesitates, and then tells everybody to retreat and leaves. And Zhuge Liang sighs a, a breath of relief, stands up. Um, and then one of the merchants comes over and says, that's amazing. I can't believe that they, they're, they're retreating. What would you have done if they had attacked? And Zhuge Liang looks at him and said, what would we have done? We have no army. We have no soldiers. We would have died. And he walks away. And it is... It's like a six-minute scene, and it is perfect. And I have watched multiple different adaptations of that scene, which is one of the most famous sort of sections of Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and nobody else has done it even close. Like, despite like the budget and everything else that more modern adaptations have, the, the filmmaking skill to build tension in that moment and using the music, using the actors, and showing that Juge Leong is nervous, that Juge Leong is projecting this incredible bluff in this moment, and he knows that there's a good chance it won't work. Most other adaptations would, wouldn't show that kind of vulnerability, um, but this adaptation, it like takes these very heightened characters from Romance of the Three Kingdoms and finds ways to like humanize them tremendously. And so, you know, that's why when characters like Juge Leong, the ending of his story as he slowly ages out and realizes that he's never going to be able to fulfill the ambitions of his master, Liu Bei, who he has this incredible love and loyalty to, and that um, the stupidity of lesser men has held him and his friends back from achieving their ambitions um, while he, like, slowly fades away and is the last one of the original group of Shu still standing. And then eventually he ages and dies. Um, and then that kind of, like, creates the power vacuum that allows Suma Yi's faction to ultimately take power. The drama and sadness and tragedy of seeing those characters age and die over the course of this 80-episode TV show that takes place over the course of over 100 years of Chinese history, um, it is... It is some of the saddest I've been watching a TV show is the last like 10 episodes of Romance of the Three Kingdoms. As you see these characters in their twilight years, um, everybody fails to achieve what they all set out to start at the beginning of the story, which is part of the message of Romance of the Three Kingdoms and sort of the drama and tragedy of history. And it's something that like, you know, this TV show is never going to be as good as the book because I'm not sure I've seen anything that is as good as Romance of the Three Kingdoms, the book. 
Um, but the fact that this TV show is able to capture so much of the drama and heart and insight of that novel, not really novel, but that, that, that tome basically, um, is an incredible achievement of adaptation that is like so far unsurpassed. And so while it is not an easy TV show to get access to, um, and you definitely have to sort of get used to the pacing and like the acting style that is a little bit more over the top and the like, you know, it's not Game of Thrones budget. It's not like this gorgeous looking TV show with like these incredibly, you know, intricately choreographed fight scenes and stuff like that. Once you get past some of like the datedness that it can have because of like when and how it was made, it is like on a pure filmmaking level, like one of the most impressive TV shows uh, I have ever seen. And I will forever have a deep and unabiding love for Romance of the Three Kingdoms. That's so cool. I um, I have been wanting to read the book and watch this show ever since you started talking about it. Um, sounds so awesome. Yeah, that, that show sounds amazing. I'm so glad you have it on here. Nobody else has a list that goes Game Center CX, The X-Files, CCTV, Romance of the Three Kingdoms from the... When was this made? The 90s? The 80s? Uh, yeah, 94. Okay. Yeah. No, that's amazing. I love that. Um yeah, not enough not enough Chinese TV shows on our list. We don't we don't know much about that that culture's TV, I don't think, but I'm glad we got one. That's cool. Yeah, like that was also one of the great revelations of watching that TV show was being like, "Oh, right. Yeah, other countries make great TV shows too." Because yeah. like we watch great foreign movies, but it's very rare that like it happens a little bit more with like streaming and you get some sort of like western and eastern european shows can kind of come up on Netflix a little bit more, but it's very rare that you like can even hear about, let alone get access to um, a foreign TV show. Uh, yeah, other than British. Think, obviously, yeah. lots of British, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it just makes me wonder, like, how much of, like, the narrative we tell we tell ourselves about, like, the history of TV is completely and horrifyingly off-base because, you know, if you think Game of Thrones does a bunch of, like, stuff that's really unique, I mean, there's lots of other TV shows that do that kind of stuff. Romance of the Three Kingdoms especially hits so many of the same kinds of notes, but much more thoroughly than Game of Thrones ever could. And it's like, you know, most oh, people are not going to see this weird 1994 adaptation of Romance of the Three Kingdoms. So it's like, you just kind of have to deal with it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's way the fuck off because, like... I can just tell you right now, the current moment we're in where everyone's fascinated by, like, filmmakers coming to TV and making TV shows, that is a, every other country that's not America, just great filmmakers have gone back and forth. Like, you know, two of the most famous examples, for instance, is, like, um, Krzysztof Krzyzlowski's The Decalogue from Poland, which was made for TV, but is ten short films. Um, and the Decalogue is arguably, you know, one of, if not the greatest TV shows ever made. I didn't really consider it for this list because I think it's been adapt adopted more by like the film studies community as just it's just ten films, but it was a TV show. Um, or Berlin Alexanderplatz by Rainer Werner Fassbinder, you know, where he just went and made an eighteen hour miniseries. So like, and that was all seventies and eighties. So you know, we're yeah, we're playing catch up in America in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, fucking Steven Spielberg directed the first episode of Columbo. So we were doing it before we even knew that we were doing it. Yep. All right. My number three, Sean, really couldn't be more different. My number, th like I said, I just, you know, these, these top three were very easy and very personal for me. My number three is The Simpsons.
say it's the Simpsons and then we could move on because I don't know what I could say that would explain better what the Simpsons is and why it's amazing than just you've either seen it and you know what I'm talking about or you haven't and you have a lot of really cool TV to discover Um, because the Simpsons is the best American comedy show it's one of the best American TV shows period it's an amazing original like there's nothing else really even remotely like it in terms of its incredible longevity in terms of its impact on pop culture um i think in terms of the depth of you know humor that has come out of it and how much has entered the lexicon it is genuinely amazing i think of the simpsons probably every day i definitely think of it more than any other show on this list i quote it all the fucking time I show clips of The Simpsons in classes I teach all the fucking time because there is a there is a Simpsons clip or a Simpsons quote for every situation. I feel like it has had new birth in the recent era of gifs on the internet because The Simpsons is so gifable and so applicable to any given moment. And there is such an amazing breadth of it. And, you know, I think there is the classic narrative that The Simpsons was good for nine or ten seasons and then has just been bad for 20 plus years now, which on its face is a ridiculous argument because if The Simpsons were really bad and just every episode was bad and no one liked it, it wouldn't have run for 30 seasons. It's a very ridiculous argument to make. I have seen every episode of the first 20 seasons. I know that. I know I've seen at least that much. I have seen intermittently from seasons like 21 to 30. None of those are on DVD. Um, And The Simpsons does not stream outside of Simpsons World, which you have to have cable for. Soon The Simpsons will be freed. It will be on Disney+. Plus. You'll be able to watch it for cheap. I'm very happy about that. So the kind of last 10 years of The Simpsons, I have seen less of. But I've seen everything in the first 20. I've seen a lot of that two, three, four, five, ten, twenty times. Some episodes like seasons four and seven are probably my favorites, and I've seen every episode of those probably at least five times a piece, and I never stop laughing at them. But my point is, this, there is a lot of good stuff in The Simpsons. The best years probably are the first nine seasons. I would say seasons 10 through 20, there is a ton of great stuff. It is more intermittent, and the show is certainly not batting a thousand the way it was in the early years, but it is still remarkable. And regularly, when I see episodes from the 21 to 30 season range, I've never seen an episode of The Simpsons that didn't make me laugh at least once. And I guess to everyone who's like, oh, The Simpsons has been going too long, I would just tell you, you go make a comedy for 30 years that has an unbelievable impact on pop culture and somehow still have at least one good solid laugh per episode. That is an amazing, amazing feat. And, you know, I think it's ongoing. It may never end. Who the hell knows? They might, like, digitize all the actors' voices and just keep it going when they're all fucking dead and buried. They might just... They probably have enough scripts written that they could just feed all the Simpsons data to a computer and have computers start writing episodes of The Simpsons. And eventually it's the first fully automated TV show. Who the hell knows? But there is plenty of greatness in the 31 years we have so far of the simpsons for me to say it is my third favorite tv show at least um it is a show i watch a lot you know growing up it was always on there were two episodes on channel 31 our local fox affiliate at 6 and 6 30 so it would often be something i watched while eating dinner with my family um 
so I saw a lot of the show growing up like that. I had certain DVD sets. It is one of those shows that I enjoyed as a kid and in some ways enjoy even more as an adult. It is a common thing. I will just go find an episode. I have a hard drive where I've ripped most of the DVDs. Sometimes you can just find episodes put up in random clips on YouTube and string those together and I'll watch it that way. Just last night I was watching an episode that is not a very not a great episode of The Simpsons. It's called Jaws Wired Shut. It's where Homer gets his jaw wired shut um and learns to be a more caring listener not a great episode and i but about halfway through the episode it has a quote from grandpa simpson where grandpa simpson is going on a really long old person story and homer can't shut him up because homer can't talk and it sounds like grandpa is about to wrap up but he keeps going with the line that i realized is probably one of my 10 favorite simpsons lines anyway long story short is a phrase whose origins are complicated and rambling (laughs) And it's just, The Simpsons can just regularly, even in a kind of subpar episode, throw out a line like that, that is just going to become part of my lexicon until the day I die. That is such a great applicable line. I love Grandpa Simpson. Grandpa Simpson has so many lines like that. I always quote Onion on my belt whenever I think of being in the same room as like kind of an old person who goes on rambling. I think of that like Sean, the reason I loved that Joe Biden corn pop speech that Mm. i had you read on the podcast a couple weeks ago is because it sounds like something they'd write on the simpsons you know yeah um my favorite one let me just read the onion speech because it is so fucking good and i love it so much this is grandpa simpson um auditioning to be a union buster for mr burns in what might be the best episode of the series last exit to springfield he says we can't bust heads like we used to but we have our ways one trick is to tell them stories that don't go anywhere like the time i caught the ferry over to shelbyville i needed a new heel for my shoe so i decided to go to morganville which is what they called shelbyville in those days so i tied an onion to my belt which was the style at the time now to take the ferry cost a nickel and in those days nickels had pictures of bumblebees on them give me five bees for a quarter you'd say now where were we oh yeah the important thing was I had an onion on my belt, which was the style at the time. They didn't have white ones because of the war. The only thing you could get was those big yellow ones, and then it trails off. Just, that's one of the great, great pieces of American comedy writing. Um, I could do Simpsons quotes all day. I could, if I tried to list favorite episodes of The Simpsons, it would be an absolutely futile thing to do, because I could probably seriously list 50 episodes and and not stop going um so i'll just tell you like if you are not a big simpsons aficionado where i think to look i would say there's great stuff everywhere season four is probably the best season of the simpsons in terms of just its density of classics that's where you get last exit to springfield which is the one where homer tries to get a dental plan for the union you have in season four um the mr plow episode you have the episode where Ralph tries to take Lisa on a date. There's just, it's, it, every episode of season four is a hit. Um, season seven, I think, is the other one that comes close to that for me. Season seven has my personal favorite episode of The Simpsons, which is A Fish Called Selma, which is the one where Troy McClure, who is Phil Harrison's um, character, um, just, am I saying that right? Is that... I'm going to look that up really quick because I want to make sure I get the actor's name right. But Troy McClure is like the movie star character on... Yeah, Phil Hartman, not Phil Harrison. Sorry. Phil Harrison is the guy who voiced Baloo in The Jungle Book. So a little messed up there. But Phil Hartman, who was on SNL and everything, died tragically young. Um, But he played Troy McClure. And that's the episode where Troy 
is having a bad go of it as an actor and realizes he needs a wife for publicity. So he marries Selma, Marge's sister. And that one just, that one also has Jeff Goldblum in it as MacArthur Parker, the agent, which is a very funny guest part. Um, and that one culminates in the funniest Simpsons scene to me, which is the Planet of the Apes musical, Stop the Planet of the Apes, I Want to Get Off, which includes the best line of the Simpsons, I hate every ape I see from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. <laughs> yeah. the, the Planet of the Apes musical, I could recite for you right now. I won't go watch it. It's fucking amazing. That is probably my favorite episode. Um, but season seven, eight, nine are all great. Those are the years Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein run it, uh, ran it, and they were great. Um, season four, like I said. Season five starts with a holdover from season four, which is the Cape Fear episode, which is the one that has... Two of my favorite Simpsons scenes. One is Sideshow Bob stepping on the rakes, which if you've never seen Sideshow Bob stepping on the rakes, is perfect physical comedy. And then it also has the scene where Sideshow Bob is in court getting paroled, and the lawyer says to him, don't you have the words die, Bart, die, tattooed on your chest? And he opens his, his shirt and says, no, no, it's German. The Bart, the. And the lawyer says, huh, no one who speaks German could possibly be an evil man. I love that. I love it so fucking much. We were talking about German cinema in my class the other day, so I just pulled up that clip and showed it to everyone. Um, because The Simpsons actually has a lot of good good uh, scenes making fun of German people. Um, you know, the show has gone on for fucking ever, and obviously any TV comedy that runs for 30-plus years and doesn't run into maybe some problematic like cultural changes, that would be very weird. And certainly there are older episodes of The Simpsons that deal with maybe, like, uh, certainly ones that deal, I think, with gay issues. Um, anytime they have gay characters or lesbian characters in maybe the first 15 seasons, I think they're always well-intentioned, but it's not the way you would depict things now. Obviously, the character of Apu is a tough one to know how to talk about because I think every Simpsons fan loves Apu, but also recognizes that... If you were starting fresh today, you absolutely would not create, a, you know, an Indian character stereotype voiced by a white guy who runs the Quickie Mart and, like, do it that way. Um, but so, so like, that's just to recognize that obviously The Simpsons is not immune from cultural criticism. And I don't want to, like, ignore that or whitewash it in the show's history. But again, you're, if you're running a show that goes from 1989 to now... There are things that are going to change. I do wish the showrunners today would be a little more open about some of that, like especially with Apu and maybe be not, I don't know if apologetic is the right word, but be open to the dialogue about it. Um, because the show has given so much, I think it's worth sort of giving something back in that conversation. And I have been disappointed in recent years of their sort of unwillingness to engage in that conversation. But, you know, I love this show. It is an American institution. It is part of my fucking blood. Homer Simpson is on the tv mount rushmore hall of fame he has to be he is one of those those heads um just one of the great comedy characters of all time so many great vocal performances on the simpsons so many great characters the world of springfield is unlike any other tv world in its just utter density of characters breadth of characters breadth of kind of humor it can do it's it's genuinely an amazing TV institution, and, you know, 
I, I hope it continues for years to come just because it would be very weird to live in a world where suddenly The Simpsons isn't airing anymore, even if you're not watching it. It's yeah. just kind of comforting to know someone is over there working on it. Fucking Al Jean, who was one of the original showrunners, came back in season 13, and he has been showrunner on The Simpsons from season 13 to now. That has to be the longest anyone's ever run one show. I have to imagine that's a record. I don't know, but I would I, I, certainly for American TV, there's nothing like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's The Simpsons. I guess I'll just leave you with, okay, I wrote down a bunch of favorite quotes. I'll just give you three here. One is, this is the one with where um, McBain, what's his, the, the Rainer Werner Wolf Castle, who is the Arnold Schwarzenegger-esque character. It's the one where he plays Radioactive Man. My eyes, the goggles do nothing, <laughs> which is one of the great Simpsons lines. You have to see it in context. Um, Homer telling his kids, kids, you tried best and you failed miserably. The lesson is, Never try. Think of that line all the time. And one of my favorites, to alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Yes, indeed. That's The Simpsons. Yeah, I personally have never been like a huge Simpsons person, just mostly because like my parents never really watched it, so I didn't get into it as a young age. So it's like I have watched, I mean, in, I don't know anybody who has not like watched a fair number of Simpsons episodes because I'm not sure it's possible to have like, <laughs> you, you'd have to have like very deliberately tried to avoid the Simpsons. Um, do unless like you know you're a kid now and therefore like normal TV is not a thing but back when like TV was a thing you just hit the button on and then there was something on the TV and you fucking watched it because it was there it was basically impossible not to have watched a lot of The Simpsons um, but yes obviously I, I respect The Simpsons deeply um, I find it funny that The Simpsons is um, the second TV show I have ever seen that has so many episodes on it that the the YouTube or the Wikipedia page for the list of the Simpsons episodes has to be split in two. Um, and if you scroll to the bottom, it says it has been split from episodes one or seasons one to twenty to twenty one modern to um, improve performance because the page was too big when it, when it was just only one um, of all of the seasons of the Simpsons. So it's it is insane. Yeah, a very impressive TV show and impressive feat for sure. All right, so Sean. Our lists have been 100% different up to now. Yes, that's true. I'm pretty sure we have the same top two, and I'm guessing we have them in the same order? I mean, we definitely have the same top two. I am I mean, you know which one my number one is, so it's, it's up to you whether or not that's right. your number one. I think we have them in the same order. Okay. So how about I introduce our number two, and then yeah. I'll give you the honor of introducing our number one, but we are in agreement. The number two best slash favorite TV show of all time, asterisk not anime, is Twin Peaks, created by David Lynch and Mark Frost.
1990 to 1991, and again for one season in 2017. Twin Peaks, of course, one of the great avant-garde experiments. Let me rephrase that. The great avant-garde experiment in the history of television, certainly in the history of narrative television. An amazing blend of cop show procedural and David Lynch Freudian dream weirdness that was utterly singular when it first aired and then years years later when we watched it Sean still completely utterly singular because Mm -hmm. in the time between when Twin Peaks aired before we were born and then when we were old enough to watch Twin Peaks there was no other Twin Peaks there was nothing that came along and like surpassed what Twin Peaks was doing it certainly laid the groundwork for things like the X-Files I think in a lot of ways but you would not say the X-Files is the same thing as Twin Peaks. No. Um, not And not to put it down, just nothing else can be Twin Peaks. Had kind of a rocky original run. I think you and I are in agreement that it's not just the first season that's great, but the first half of the second season. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, so I, th- every, I think the first to- season is always great. I think season two, the first half is mostly great. It kind of starts trailing off a little bit, and then the second half of season two is... Um, Interesting. Yes, we'll say it's interesting. But basically everything up to when you learn who killed Laura Palmer is peak classic Twin Peaks. And then the second half of season two is interesting uh, and has, if nothing else, a very memorable finale. Yes. Then there's the movie Firewalk With Me, which I know is a movie, but it's included in here. Right, Sean? You can't ignore it. I mean, basically, I mean, it's it's inclusion or lack of inclusion would not move the no. it, anywhere on my list. So it's an academic question. But especially because the return relies so much on Firewalk With Me being within that conversation that I think it is effectively grandfathered in. Yeah. Yes. So, and I think the interesting thing is, Sean... I don't know if Twin Peaks would have been on my top ten before the return. It would not have been on mine. I can, I, yeah. can, I love Twin Peaks seasons one and two. Um, but if it was not the return, I would not have included Firewalk with me. And if I did not include Firewalk with me, it definitely would not be in my top ten. Um, yes, you, you and I are in agreement on this because pre the return, I think the best Twin Peaks thing is Firewalk with me. And yes. it sounds like you do too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So at, and at that point, yes, I think if the return never happened, I don't know if Twin Peaks would make my top 10. And I love original Twin Peaks. But I think this is primarily on our lists. And it is definitely at number two because of the recent season, Twin Peaks The Return, which is the best season of television that has ever been made, probably ever will be made. Um, I think Twin Peaks The Return is an atom bomb on the medium of filmmaking that we are going to be sifting through the fallout of for literally decades to come. And we are at just the tip of the iceberg point of that having been made, released, and starting to be digested by the body politic of film and TV and cultural studies. Because it certainly was very acclaimed and discussed when it aired. I think there's a lot of digestion left to happen there. Because I think Twin Peaks The Return is probably the most significant piece of filmmaking that has happened in the 21st century. It happened to be done on TV. Um, It completely upends, I think, a lot of the line between TV and film. While also honoring so much of what makes the TV medium special. Um, Twin Peaks The Return is the best David Lynch thing. It is one of the best pieces of filmed media I've ever seen. 
And that is primarily why it is at number two. But the great thing is, if you put it at number two, you also get all that wonderful stuff in the original ABC run. And maybe you just bring Firewalk With Me along for the ride because the return definitely doesn't exist without Firewalk With Me. Yeah, yeah. And I echo all of those sentiments. I mean, obviously we we did... I mean, one of the most fun things we did on this podcast was going through and podcasting on each episode of Twin Peaks The Return as it was airing um, for 18 episodes, which I'm always kind of shocked when I look at that and realize, fucking holy, I can't believe they got 18 fucking episodes. Like, I can't believe they got one episode. Yeah. <laughs> like, even even having seen it, it still feels bizarre that it that it, it exists, that, that, could, that it could even have happened. Um, and I'm like emotionally building myself up to eventually doing the full rewatch because I got the yep. Blu-rays. Like, I have it. I can I can watch it at any time. I've watched some of the bonus features on that Blu-ray back when I got it. But it's like I have not had the emotional fortitude to go on that journey again because it is so, so powerful. And, and part of what makes it so such an incredible piece of work is how much it feels like it is addressing... Um, I mean, it's addressing the like concerns with America that have always existed and things that David Lynch has always explored in his media. Um, but it is specifically this moment in time and, you know, airing over the course of 2017, 2018. Um, or, yes. no, It was no, all over, 2017. Yeah, all over the course of 2017. Um, just like hitting in the middle of, you know, Trumpism, basically. And, and, and this period of American history, it feels like the most astute powerful artistic exploration of that i have seen in anything like it is has its fucking finger on the pulse so thoroughly and is exploring it in i think the only way that this kind of very bizarre fractured period in in american history can be explored which is in this more experimental very strange bizarre piece of filmmaking that will you know have like just hang on a shot of someone like sweeping a floor for like three minutes like you need green to have... onions, man. Green onions. They no one else can use it again. They did it. Yep. Yeah. You you need this kind of bizarre, kind of idiosyncratic storytelling style that will have what is like some of the most like intense, horrifying TV I've ever seen. Um, but then also some of like just the mo- most lackadaisical, just slow plotting, hanging TV and like film I've ever watched. And it's like the confidence to just hold on specific shots to show the weird mundanity to show things um and like follow characters without giving like significant context to why we're following like this specific character from the old show for this sequence or whatever um it's willingness to sort of bounce around and tell whatever vignette it wants to tell at that time and having the sort of artistic um and like kind of directorial oversight to make all of those what feel like at times non sequiturs congeal together for each individual episode to feel like a definitive episode of television that makes a definitive statement on its own about whatever it is talking about as, as wide reaching and far and like weird as it can be at times in the moment, it is always congeals together. And then ultimately for the whole show to be congealing to its ultimate point in what is uh, probably for me, the best finale any TV show has had on what is certainly the last, the best like final three or five minutes of a TV show ever in the best, best last line of a TV show um, I think that could ever be had, which is Coop just saying, what year is it? And then the scream and then cut to black um, is a moment that I have thought about so much um, since since that aired. And, and that like, what year is it? That sensation that Cooper is delivering there is to me like, 
the definitive question of of Trump's America, right? And of the moment we're at, and I feel that feeling of love being lost and confused in time. Um, that 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 finale delivers so much in my day to day life, and I and no other piece of art has like kind of hit on that specific feeling. Um, certainly the way that the return did. You know, there's been rumors going around about Lynch and Frost possibly reteaming for another season. I don't put a ton of stock in those rumors yet, especially because if you remember the many years leading up to the return, how stop and start it was until it finally went in front of the cameras, let alone being edited and put before our eyes. I There's a part of me that is excited. I mean, I want more David Lynch in the world. You know, I want him to direct more stuff. And if Twin Peaks is where he can get the money, he should do it. The ending's too perfect. Like, there's part of me that's just like, it's too perfect to 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 mess with this thing anymore, um, because you're right. I think I think I probably agree. Um, it's almost weird to think of the end of Twin Peaks: The Return as a series finale because it is so not operating in the way any other series finale would operate. It's in a completely different register. But I, it's certainly the most powerful, um, especially I think if you include the the last two that aired together, yeah. the final night. Um, which really is, it's not one big episode, it's two very different episodes, but they are like, it's like finale A, finale B, and one provides one thing, and one provides the other thing. It's almost a deconstruction of series finales, and yeah, it has never really left my mind. Um, and we haven't even mentioned, of course, the the key episode of that run, which is part eight, which is the atom bomb one, which is one of the great avant-garde films ever made contained within an episode one of the great episodes of tv ever made it's it's unbelievable and within all of this we haven't even talked about mr kyle mclaughlin Mm -hmm. and how he played one of the best tv characters of all time in agent dale fucking cooper on the original show and then he comes back 20 years later to do twin peaks the return and plays three characters evil coop regular coop and doug Dougie, Dougie Jones, our boy, and for the most part, he's just Dougie Jones and Evil Coop until near the very end, and you and I wouldn't have it any other fucking way because it was amazing and perfect. Yeah, Dougie Jones is definitely like one of the all-time great TV characters to me. Um, Yes. Just like having Kyle MacLachlan stumble around the set in an utter stupor for like the first (laughs) half of that series before he like, before Dougie slowly starts gaining some mild amount of like human will and effort, um, which is even like almost nothing, but he gets a little bit more agency in the second half of the show. Um, But yeah, just having this like weird plotting, like, protagonist i mean he is if you had to label one protagonist dougie is the main protagonist i mean you know dougie slash dale you know in his transformation um at the near the end um but he is like the perfect protagonist that we could have of, of this weird um sort of lost wandering observer that is just stumbling stumbling into scenarios and kind of his even without exerting a will, his mere presence um, sort of alters the course of events um, around him. And just seeing that occur, it both like creates really satisfying, beautiful, dramatic moments um, that like are very like deeply human. And also just some of the, the hard, hardest I've laughed at a TV show um, in recent memory, just through the the bizarre antics of, of Dougie Jones and, and everybody just... Like, either people being, like, perplexed by him, or oftentimes people not being perplexed enough by, by the presence of Dougie Jones um, was never not funny. Oh, I loved it so much. It, I really do 
have a nostalgia for podcasting about this season and watching it and I took my very extensive notes on it and we went through it and just breaking it down together and laughing about it and diving into so much of what it had to offer and and the ideas it sparked because it really is a show built for discussion it weirdly I think is the perfect model for modern tv storytelling and how beautifully it did an episodic slash serialized thing and built Mm -hmm. these episodes that were pieces of art in and of themselves and conversation starters in and of themselves and stories in and of themselves but all building this larger tapestry and almost more of a tapestry than a forward-moving story in a lot of ways um really is an achievement that I think a lot of other shows should look to and something I don't think we expected David Lynch to be the guy to teach us that not to put him down or anything we love David Lynch he's one of our favorite filmmakers but you know original Twin Peaks um had trouble with that let's say certainly at a certain point um and you know when it's and David Lynch also was not the only or even necessarily prime creative mover of the majority of the original series so it's it's a really fascinating thing, uh, the the return. I think we should also just give a little bit of attention to why we love the show in the first place. Like, what was the foundation that allowed them to make this great season? And, of course, the original Twin Peaks is this amazing, perfect setup with Laura Palmer, this seemingly perfect girl who had a lot of secrets that is sort of... She is a synecdoche for the secrets of a small town in America that is more than it seems on the surface. And the show is about Dale Cooper coming into town and sort of dissecting this place. And this place is full of amazing, crazy characters and amazing, crazy actors and performances and amazing, crazy tones and styles. And it is a mixture of a soap opera and of an FBI drama and just general Lynchian weirdness. And, you know, you have something as much as, like, my favorite episode of Twin Peaks of the original run is episode two, which is actually the third episode, because they're named weirdly. And that is the one that has, most famously, the dancing uh, dwarf scene at the end in the Red Room, and ends with Cooper waking up and, and calling the sheriff and saying, I know who killed Laura Palmer. No, it can wait until morning. And then he snaps himself back to sleep. But that episode also has Jerry and Ben Horn eating the brie and butter sandwiches, which is one of the great pieces of food comedy. It's got Cooper out in the in the forest doing the thing with the rocks and yep. the bucket and trying to figure that shit out. Um, that is probably the purest example of Twin Peaks looniness and beauty. Um, as we've talked about before, there are six episodes of the original run directed by David Lynch, and those are the six best, but not to put down any of the other amazing writers and directors who worked on the show. Certainly you don't want to forget the the you know contributions of Mark Frost, the other co-creator. Um, but Twin Peaks just had... It's, it's one of those TV communities you kind of just wanted to spend time in. It is a world all its own. And I think it's extra amazing when you consider the original show had an eight-episode first season, a 22-episode second season, 30 episodes overall, and I think created a world every bit as rich as some of these other much longer-running series we've talked about. And that's an amazing achievement of it. Yeah, and just like the 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 very per- peculiar and unique tone of Twin Peaks, which was never quite replicated by anything, but was so influential on pop culture in the 90s in particular that it does like, you know, I mean, the X-Files clearly is like at multiple times appealing to um, Twin Peaks in many of its episodes. And, and just that sense of like the the peculiar dreamlike nature of so much of, of what that show is and its ability to flip between the horror 
um, and drama of the murder of Laura Palmer to the like strange antics of the the townsfolk in like finding that kind of connective material between that like magical realism uh, police drama and then the like soap opera reality of this town and the way that they kind of like move on that register between those two places. Um, it's it's such a unique TV show and it, and it is like I I love it to death. It is certainly like like the return ends up feeling like it overshadows that so much partially because it is so much more recent and then it, it what it is is so titanic but yeah it, it is what the return does is pulling from that really rich source material and it's one of the things that is so great about the third season of twin peaks is that it has the perfect relationship to its own past where it is pulling the things that are powerful and notable from it but is not sort of like slobbering over its own nostalgia it is using its history to sort of propel itself forward without being at any point like a rear looking kind of um show and so that that history of the original twin peaks sort of saga of the first two seasons in fire walk with me um is like the perfect soil for the return to grow out of is kind of how it feels like to me yeah, I mean, what could be a better tonic for our just nostalgia-infected culture than Twin Peaks The Return, mm-hmm. which is so critically interrogative of the very nature of nostalgia, as much of David Lynch's work is, but also feels like the greatest response possible for the just endless string of revivals and backwards-looking media that we are inundated with today and Twin Peaks The Return sort of acknowledges that impulse and then pushes forward as boldly as humanly possible, let's say. Yep. Um, it's an amazing, amazing thing, this show and this world exists. And that, yeah, I, don't, I just, I don't know if there's any, you know, more compact shotgun blast of proof of what the televisual medium can do than Twin Peaks The Return. In that you take this all-time great filmmaker... Give him 18 hours to do whatever the hell he wants with and then let him run. No one's ever done that. Like the closest would be Decalogue or Berlin Alexanderplatz. But, you know, I would um, just humbly say Fassbender is not on the level of Lynch and Decalogue is a very different thing because it is a series of loosely connected short films. Twin Peaks The Return just, it, it really, I don't know if we will ever see its like again and I think it was so of this particular moment where every network was just the arms race of seeing what different networks could do to compete with each other in the Netflix age of just like, what if we gave David Lynch a blank check in 18 hours when no show makes 18 hours anymore? That's one of the most ridiculous things about it. And yeah, what we got was just straight from the heart, unadulterated genius frankly and i don't i i hate to almost use that word because i don't want to sound like you know i'm a simpering fanatic of this guy but i kind of think the return deserves it <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean it, it is it is like it is pure feeling right yeah. as as a story um it, it feels so true to itself in a way that is hard like regardless of like you know, studio politics or any of that kind of stuff, just like individual creators, it is hard to make something that feels honest. And that is, that is so what season three of Twin Peaks feels. It just feels like this purely honest depiction of um, like America today and this, this um, particular creator's perspective on it and like him and and the people helping him make it. Um, It just feels so of its own self. Um, And and it does, it's like, 
like you said, I've heard those rumors about maybe a season four or some other kind of continuation of Twin Peaks. And I would obviously be fascinated to know what the fuck does a follow-up to that season finale look like? Because I have, I literally have no idea how you could do a follow-up. You're like, we're literally not even in the same fucking universe <laughs> anymore at the end of that show. Like, I don't know what a follow-up looks like at that point. Do you keep on going in the same universe? Do you go back to the original universe of Twin Peaks? I don't know. Like, you'd have to start explaining stuff that is only, like, vaguely implied by what happens in the return to even do some sort of continuation, probably. But I would sure be fascinated to see what David Lynch's idea of another Twin Peaks story would even fucking look like. Um, but yeah. it is not... It is not needed. Like, you know, this is thoroughly my number two without any... Like, like even if it was just the return, it would be my number two. But it is, is it needs no additions. It needs nothing else. Like, it, it stands on its on its own two legs as this fascinating, pure, um, artistic exploration of what I think are some of the most interesting and vital themes of, of um, our current time. And I think it signals to me kind of the clearest flag in the sand that the kind of filmmaking that you know we celebrate as like adult driven artistic filmmaking it's not in movies anymore i mean it is but not predominantly i think that's where tv is today and i think there's nothing clearer than david lynch after inland empire in 2006 couldn't get a movie made for a decade he gets to do this in twin peaks and i think it is the biggest and best thing he has ever done or will ever get to do and, uh, you know, surrounded by an age of television where you have a lot of such, you know, interesting people getting to tell such interesting stories. You know, I think we've also lamented, you know, that some kinds of TV are disappearing, but I don't want to ignore that so much great TV is getting made that would never have gotten made before. The Return being certainly an example of that. Um, just looking at it in comparison to the original Twin Peaks, and you can see that. Uh, so... What an, uh, what an amazing thing, and what a joy it was to go through it all on the podcast, you know, Sean? Yeah, absolutely. It yeah. is, like, I think it would have been in some ways hard to watch the TV show, that show, if we had not had this podcast to, to yep. decompress um, with. Like, it definitely made that viewing experience um, richer. Um, whether that is yeah. something that people need a podcast or they just have someone that they can have that conversation with. It is hard to think about watching Twin Peaks The Return on your own knowing nobody else who's seen it and no outlet with which to express or communicate your feelings about it. I think that it is a challenging show in that way for sure. Yep. All right. Uh, and if you know, if you want to watch it, you have us to, to be those people talking to you because we recorded all those and they're in the feed forever, basically. Yes. So there you go. Yeah. All right, Sean. Sounds like we had the same number two. We're going to have the same number one. Do you want to go ahead and tell us what is our number one favorite TV show of all time? Yeah, well, I think it was inevitable, Jonathan, if people have been listening to this podcast for any length of time, they would know what our number one would have to be. Without a doubt, the best TV show ever made, clearly, is Game of Thrones. I'll stop. Yeah. No, I mean, we, we you know, Game of Thrones... No, okay, fucking, obviously, no, no. It's, uh... It's uh, it's Doctor Who, because of course it is. Like what, Doctor Who.
make how could we make a list on this podcast? Like even more than Persona, how could we make a list on this podcast and not have Doctor Who be number one for our TV shows? It's Doctor it's, Who is quite literally the reason this fucking podcast exists. Yes, yeah. Um it is it is um it, you know, it's been a running thing in both of our lives for a long time at this point. We both started watching Doctor Who in high school. Our our approaches were slightly different. You 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 started you at the tell same the story. Yeah, you you started watching with Christopher Eccleston. Was like that makes sense, and then I started watching with an unearthly child in William Hartnell, and that didn't make sense, but I did it anyways. Um, it's yeah, it's. I mean, we have talked more about Doc. There's more time in the world of us talking about Doctor Who than any other subject. Like you can, if you want to sit down and listen to us talking about one thing, Doctor Who is the longest, like persona would be the second, but we have been podcasting about Doctor Who weekly since season seven. And we did intermittent ones before that for season six. Um, We have done multiple different classic Doctor Who podcasts at different points. Um, it, It has been a long ongoing thing that has basically spanned the breadth of this whole podcast has defined this podcast and has defined our lives and it also is just for me the best tv show that has ever been made and and i don't know anything that would even be able to top it in 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 a number of different ways it's the perfect tv show because it takes what i think is great about the televisual medium which is the ability to tell interesting small scale stories on an ongoing basis and finds an engine by which you can tell literally any story you want and you can do it in a variety of tones and styles and periods and it can go on to infinity basically because the main engine is you have this amazingly elastic character who literally changes his face actor body uh, his or her at this point their face and Every couple of years, you get to regenerate the show, you get to bring in new people, you get to change the energy, and you get to keep going with new amazing stories. It is the ultimate show that looks forward and doesn't look back. And, you know, I'm coming to this, Sean, from the position of not having seen every episode of Doctor Who. I've seen all of Modern Who and a very significant chunk of Classic Who at this point. I've seen all of the Third Doctor, I've seen about half of the Fourth Doctor... And then I've seen a bunch of all the other doctors. Um, so I've seen all, I've seen definitely more than the average viewer. Um, you have seen all of it, 100%. Um, but part of that to me is that's part of what I love. And, and there's no hesitation for me putting it at number one because I haven't seen it all. That's exciting. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of Doctor Who I haven't seen. That's awesome. And because of the setup of the show, you don't have to sit down and watch it all in order. You can. It's really fun that way, um, as you've attested to. And, and I felt when I watched through like all the third Doctor stuff. Um, but like, you can also just, on a rainy day, just like, oh, you know what? I haven't seen this, this random second Doctor story. Let's pull that off the, the hypothetical shelf and put that in today. And it's going to be an amazing adventure. And then you could jump ahead and be like, ah, oh, I really remember that 10th Doctor episode I loved. And you could put that in. And it has so thoroughly transcended the moment it was born in and become the TV show for all time, all places, increasingly all people. Um, and that's just the wonderful thing about it. There literally is nothing like Doctor Who, but Doctor Who can also be everything, and that is what makes it so abundantly special. Absolutely. It, it is the like the richest setup for a TV show that has ever been created and probably can be created and is like 
I, I don't know how you could replicate it because it is it, it took like this weird mix of like a certain amount of like 60s not giving a fuck to say well we're losing our lead actor because he's old and and, and is ill um so let's just replace him but we can't just replace him and just pretend that nothing happened so let's like contextualize it in the show and from that decision forth like doctor who proper was born with this sense of being able to reinvent itself for whatever was needed at the time um so yeah so obviously it should be made clear that when we say doctor who we are talking about all of doctor who we're not segmenting one like classic doctor who from modern doctor who um it is the scope of the show from 1963 to now because part of what makes the show special is its scope and its history and the talent involved in like the miracle involved in making it feel like you can watch an episode of with William Hartnell from 1963 and you can watch an episode with like Colin Baker from the eighties and you can watch an episode with David Tennant from, you know, the two thousands. And, you know, they are very different performances of the main character in many ways. The main character is written differently in many ways. And yet the core thread of the show and the core thread of the doctor feels pure throughout and feels like it is, you know, it is consistent in some fundamental core way which is absurd to think about that like it, it is not something that should be true and yet the show has managed to pull it off um and in that like sense of the show being able to evolve but keep some sort of heart of it the same throughout which is the you know the in fiction conception of what regeneration is the show is able to to perform that in, in the world as well which is remarkable um and this is also i mean this was the show that was my number one the last time we did our TV show thing into 2013. Um, and it's interesting to think about the way that our relationship with Doctor Who has changed in the intervening six years. Um, and we'll talk about the way that like, because the last time we did this list, we were in the middle of season seven. Like literally it was at the break point between, um, it was after Angels Take Manhattan before The Snowman. So we were in this weird limbo period where Amy and Rory were off the show um, the we didn't really know exactly what fucking Jenna Coleman was going to be. We knew she was going to be the companion, um, and we were in what was like one of the, the, the now it has to be one of the darker periods of modern Doctor Who because we'll maybe I don't know we'll address what's going on right now. But what's that good, was Sean. What's going on right now is they did that really promising thing where they regenerated the Doctor into a woman and got a great actress, and that was really promising. But then that meteor hit BBC Studios, and they stopped making Doctor Who. That was really tragic. I'm really sad they're not making Doctor Who right now because the meteor hit the offices. I wanted to see what that was going to come next, but there's just no more Doctor Who. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting how that worked out. Yeah, because you know, back in back in the middle of season seven, that was when it felt like Moffat was kind of stressed to his limit. We were, like, I was particularly fresh off of um, the Husbands of Rivers, or no, the Wedding of River Song, um, the season finale for season six. So if you go back and listen to our original episode where we did our, our lists, um, that is still in the middle of the Doctor Who phase of the podcast where um, every episode, Stephen Moffat would find some place to have some Doctor Who pun in the middle of this fucking, it's just awful. Um, and so, like, like... For whatever reason, we seem to be always doing these lists at some point where Doctor Who is in a very unsure position as a TV show. Um, but also, by the, at that point, I was still relatively fresh off of classic Doctor Who. Because I had caught up with classic Doctor Who um, with the ending of season five. So that was basically two years after I finished watching um, classic Doctor Who proper. Um, and, and, and since then, 
like one of the great things about Doctor Who in my life has been this ability to just be like, I can just go back to whatever fucking episodes I want to watch and just watch them. And kind of in a certain sense of like rediscovery occasionally of like, oh, I didn't remember how good like Robots of Death is. And then you just rewatch, like pull it off, you know, your hard drive or whatever for me and watch Robots of Death and be like, oh my God, this is like one of the great all-time great Tom Baker episodes. I did not appreciate anywhere near enough the first time I watched it. And and um, like a lot of the Six Doctor stuff when we started doing our classic Doctor Who um, podcast and, and re-watching Visions on Faros and gaining more appreciation for that era of the TV show. Um, and like the ability to go back and re-watch those episodes, having had the context of watching them through linearly, which I do appreciate having done it that way the first time, but picking them out and plucking them out and like enjoying them purely on their own and just like taking an afternoon to watch City of Death. Um, like Doctor Who is such a beautiful thing to have in your life because you have you know, 50 plus years worth of stories that you can just start cherry picking the best from and just watch those and enjoy those. And that has been um, such a like truly wonderful thing to have to be able to fall back on. And it's something where like Doctor Who is never too far away from me because I'm always going back and watching like The Mind Robber or something, which I rewatched, Patrick Trout an episode I rewatched relatively recently. Um, and, and that yeah. experience of having this wealth of classic Doctor Who that is so rich and varied and interesting um is is one thing that is so vital about this show and the like vast history that it has to it yes um i don't remember where i had doctor who on my list last time i can i, I can pull up, 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 up uh, it was number nine shit okay well because at the time that actually kind of makes sense to me because i would have seen predominantly only modern who and at that point, Modern Who, without its what we've come to know as its best period, which is the Capaldi years. Yeah, we'll get that. And I think, yeah, I think since then, what has happened for me that puts it emphatically at number one is, A, just we now have 300 episodes of podcasting where Doctor Who is a consistent thing that is part of just a core part of our show, our friendship, our lives, all of those things. Mm -hmm. But I think the Capaldi years happened, which is one of the most astonishing things we've seen in modern TV history, and certainly the best period of modern Who. Then I've also watched a really significant chunk of classic Who. So one thing we did is we did our classic Doctor Who series, Sean, which was nine episodes, kind of the precursor to Weekly Suit Gundam. Yep. Um, and I'd love to do more of that classic Who show at some point as, as topics or something. But we did one for every Doctor and two for the fourth Doctor because he was around so long. And I highly recommend going and seeking out those episodes. They're in the main podcast feed. It's the best way I think you'll, you'll be introduced to classic Who if you haven't watched it is just follow Sean's recommendations and then listen to our um, discussions about them. It's really cool. But out of that, I just sat down one day, put on Spearhead from Space, which is the first third Doctor episode... Loved it. Went on to Doctor Who and the Silurians. And before I knew it, I'd watched all five years of the third Doctor, John Pertwee, who is my boy. I fucking love John Pertwee. Mm -hmm. And I love Joe Grant. And I love all that stuff. And that was so good. Then I jumped in and started watching Tom Baker. Saw all of the Robert Holmes, uh, Philip Hinchcliffe years, his first three seasons. And then I was in his fourth season when I moved houses. And then I was going to be moving again for college. And I just fell off classic Doctor Who and I haven't quite gotten back on the train. I still, I have all my, I have a hard drive full of Doctor Who that I've made. I've got it all. I've just got to um, figure out where and how I'm going to jump back into it. But I have obviously seen then stuff from the later Fourth Doctor years. 
uh, and then the fifth, sixth, and seventh. Um, I probably know five, six, and seven the least of the doctors because I've seen quite a bit of one and two at this point. Um, and less of five, six, seven. But that is now a pretty significant chunk of Classic Who I've seen. Yep. And I think Classic Who is just as good as TV gets. It is so rock solid, especially the first four Doctors just consistently, you know, throw a dart at a story from the first four Doctors. It's probably good. Like, mm-hmm. there are duds, but it is amazing how few of them there are, considering how much television they made. There was just something in the fucking water of that show that was unbelievably good. And, yeah, just like I said, throw a dart. You will find something amazing and revelatory and sometimes just light and fun. You know, it can be that, too. It can just be a nice little diversion. Um, you know, or you might get a fucking Roger Delgado Master episode and be like, oh, God, this is the best TV villain ever. I love this man. I love him so much. Why did he have to die? I wanted more of the Master. This is so good. Uh, and I think all of that combined meant, Sean, when it came time to make this list... There was, this was the easiest number one in list history for me. It was bring up the, the, bring up the word document, one, period, Doctor Who, then start listing other things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it couldn't be anything else. It would be dishonest and a lie to say it's anything else on this fucking podcast with this fucking history we've had. Um, yeah, and you know, I would also just put the best of Doctor Who toe-to-toe with the best of any other TV show, and it comes out either on the same level or usually on top. Absolutely, and it, it, it cannot be stressed enough how much like you cannot, um, you you should not underestimate classic Doctor Who just because it's yes. like old or a little bit goofy and it doesn't have a great budget. Like those stories are incredible, and like like you said, the first four Doctors in particular had a really high level of consistent quality. Um, even you would get occasional duds, but usually those duds were not that bad. Um, and then, but the great episodes, the truly standout episodes of Doctor Who, which for a show that has been running for over fifty years, there are lots of truly standout episodes of Doctor Who. Um, those are among the best television ever created. You know, like there, it's hard to find a TV story better than City of Death or um, Brain of Morbius, or um, like Tomb of the Cybermen, or the Invasion of the Cybermen from the Second Doctor, or even the Mind Robber, the Aztecs for the First Doctor. Holy shit, the Aztecs is so good. Yeah, the Demons, um, Spearhead from Space, as you said earlier. Um, Of course, Caves of Androzani for the Fifth Doctor. Um, It's just, there's, it's a ridiculous wealth of incredible science fiction TV. Um, Also kind of like with the X-Files spanning a really fun range of different genres from comedy to sci-fi, drama, adventure, horror, um, you know, incredibly rich with so many great characters running across it. So classic Doctor Who, I mean, without classic Doctor Who, this would not be a number one. Um, but so for so as you said, it was an easy number one pick. But I have to admit that when we first started doing like getting serious about, okay, we're going to do the top 10 TV show podcast. And I went down and made a document I had remembered, obviously, that the first time we did this, that Doctor Who would, was my number one. And so there was a moment where I considered, like, well, maybe 
because I had that be my number one last time, I like make an exception and put Twin Peaks The Return as my number one because since in like the intervening years, Twin Peaks The Return has been the best TV show. Like I was trying to come up with an argument because I thought like that might be like an interesting way to think about the list um, of doing these Redux lists is kind of part of it is not just what are my top 10 favorite TV shows. Part of it for me is also looking at what was it the last time five plus years ago and how has it changed since then? And I toyed with that idea for about, like, a minute or two. And then I realized that, oh, wait, shit, Peter Capaldi. Like, seasons 8, 9, and 10 have happened. Um, And so, like, it's it's not just the old stuff that gets Doctor Who here. It's not just the stuff that I had already seen the last time we did this list. Although a lot of that stuff I appreciate even more now because I've seen it multiple times. So it's like, you know, it's still, like, my love for it has grown. But I think one of the things that makes um, Doctor Who an inarguable number one for me is having um, the three Peter Capaldi seasons there and being what is easily the richest period in modern Doctor Who and in contention for being the richest period in the history of the show. Um, and it and that is some of the like with Twin Peaks Return. Sorry. Hmm? Go yeah, on. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll say? say later. No, it's okay. I was just going to okay. say for me, it's it's like the Capaldi years, Hinchcliffe Holmes... And maybe the Joe Grant seasons for the third Doctor, um, you yeah. know, and and I don't know know enough about first and second, but like those would be the ones that would be warring it out for me. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, it's either Holmes, Hinchcliffe, fourth Doctor, or it's Moffat and Capaldi. Like it's like like those are the two for me that that you know probably depending on what day you ask me what is the best period of Doctor Who, I'll give you one or the other. Um, but. Which is just like, you know, the fucking an amazing thing to, to, to be able to say. But it is like when you look at what Doctor Who can be in, in you know, the 2010s, in this period in history, like it is hard to imagine something being able to pull off Doctor Who better than the Moffat Capaldi team. Like it is those three seasons are so incredible. They have such a rich... Um, range of different episodes so many all-time greats just incredible classics um some of the, like the greatest tv finales ever um, particularly for seasons nine and ten um and then plus putting twice upon a time in there as well um just some of like the funniest television and like the most uplifting television like the has the husbands of river song is one of my like favorite just like feel-good episodes of tv i've ever seen with just like an all-time great, like, romantic ending of an episode of, you know, um, having Alex Kingston and Peter Capaldi be there and having that speech with the singing towers of um, Derelithium or whatever the fuck it's called. Um, Derelium. Derelium, that's it. Um, Why do I remember that? (laughs) Yes. Like, that's such a beautiful moment. But the performance of Capaldi and then um, Jenna Coleman as... Uh, Clara in particular. I mean, obviously, Bill Potts, also all-time great companion. But the Clara and Capaldi stuff, which, which you know, epitomized in season nine, is just some of the best TV that has been made. And, and certainly, like, of this period of recent TV history, is among the best and is up there with a Twin Peaks season three for me um, as just some of the best TV that has been made. Like, in season nine, one of the all-time great TV seasons ever created, with Heaven Sent being... You know, again, like you put like episode eight of Twin Peaks The Return and Heaven Sent to Me like next to each other. Like those are just incredible 
singular episodes of television that are amazing feats of like every kind of you know production direction writing performance um all at the absolute a game um and and then music as well with murray gold and his score for those episodes and then of course hellbent being just you know an episode that gets better and better every time i've watched it like i've seen through the peter capaldi doctor who four times at this point because i keep on fucking watching it because i can't stop and it has been like this constant thing for me is I will just occasionally be like, ah, time to watch Peter Capaldi playing Doctor Who and, and watch some of these episodes again. Because there are a couple of kind of like rough episodes in those three seasons, because of course they're going to be. But like the vast majority of those episodes are all fucking timers. Um, and so there, there, there is no question in my mind that like not only is Doctor Who a number one because of everything that has come before, but also like the most recent Doctor Who Barring, you know, uh-huh. um, but like the most recent significant Doctor Who gets it on this list. Like, like even that on its own, even those three Peter Capaldi seasons on their own would be probably in my top five. Um, oh, I'll, Sean, I was thinking about this because I had a similar, it was never in doubt for number one, but I was thinking about how to kind of position the different eras. But if I take, you know, classic, or if I take the Peter Capaldi seasons of Doctor Who and say, just say that's a TV show and, and we're... We're under-ranking at a certain point, not talking about how good the Matt Smith seasons are, too. Yes, like, that's true, yeah. just, just take the Capaldi ones and say, that's a TV show. Every other great show of this decade, some of which I've listed, like The Leftovers, or Hannibal, or Breaking Bad, or Better Call Saul, or Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and then a lot of others I love, like Mad Men, um, and, and others that are not on this list. The Capaldi seasons are better than all of those. They just are. I think they're better television. And I yep. think, like, I talked about The Leftovers and how powerfully it explores grief 100% as a holistic TV show I don't think any show has explored grief better but if you're talking about one episode I think Heaven Sent is a better one episode story about grief than any one episode of The Leftovers and I'm not trying to put down The Leftovers I'm just saying Doctor Who can just come out swinging with that at a random interval almost because it's got that it's got that potential in its DNA and I think that's the lesson of why we're talking about the Peter Capaldi stuff Sean is because the Matt Smith era does end on a down note. Like, his last episode is great, but his last season is rough. And I think you and I were wondering, can this thing keep going with this same crew? And then it had its one of its two best eras ever. And right now we're in a very low downswing for Doctor Who. And we can talk about that more if we want to. But, you know, the Chris Chibnall year so far, it did not obviously impact our ranking here. Right, Sean? No. Because... The potential is still there. The The seed of potential that is Doctor Who does not get killed by one season, even if it is a season as soul-crushingly, titanically awful as Doctor Who Series 11, which pretty much is as bad a season of TV as Twin Peaks The Return is good. <laughs> um, yeah. They're like opposite fucking poles to me. That seed of potential has not been extinguished, and... You know, I might have my dark days where I do just in my mind want to believe we're in the timeline where the meteor hit BBC and they're having to reconvene before they make more Doctor Who. But realistically, it's there. It's not my flavor of Doctor Who right now. It'll be back. It's 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 bigger than me. It's older than me. It's wiser than me. I will have faith in it. Yeah, good Doctor Who will rise again. Whether whether you know this team can somehow get its shit together, which is technically a possibility. I'm, I don't have a huge amount of faith in series twelve, but it's it could be good. They they might like learn from their mistakes. Um, but even if they don't, eventually somebody else will take over. 
you know, the phoenix will rise from his ashes. Like, Doctor Who is an immortal fucking TV show. Like, the BBC already canceled it once, and it came back, and it's, like, one of their, like, best, most popular, longest-running shows. Like, we're talking about a show that, in its modern incarnation, has been running for 11 seasons. Most TV shows don't even get fucking close to that. Um, 11 seasons, and it's on its fifth Doctor, which is almost to the number of Doctors the original show had. We'll probably get there in this next decade. It might surpass the number of Doctors by 2030, right? I mean, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the X-Files only got to 11 seasons, which is, is where it stopped at, because they got two extra seasons 10 years after the show got canceled. Like they got a little extra stacked on. Like the modern Doctor Who has been running longer than that in terms of just like season, um, which is remarkable. Um, so it will, it was, you know, the Doctor Who will be forever strong. Um, it will, it will, it doesn't matter. Like it is resilient. Um, you know, it's it's not like... Doctor Who doesn't break, it bends, right? And, like, eventually it will bounce back um, um, better than ever. And, yeah, like, it is, you know, the, the on the last podcast we did in 2013 with the, the TV show thing, like, I talked about how my relationship to Doctor Who, I feel like, made me a better person, which I still think is true. Like, I still think. And, like, even more so with the Peter Capaldi version, which so starkly put into focus those qualities of the Doctor's character, which are admirable and, like, worth sort of thinking about and think about how they relate to your own life and the idea of like kindness and true kindness that he kind of um, fights for and lives for is something that I think about a lot. And I think about especially like his speech from the finale of season 10 about, you know, standing your ground and fighting for what is right, um, like quite a bit, particularly again, like the modern political moment making you think about such things uh, more often maybe than you would otherwise. And, and it's stuff like that that, also makes me i have i have a big announcement jonathan i've been thinking about this a lot and i have i have it's time to drop a a bombshell for this podcast that i think it is time to finally just for me to admit to myself that after all this time i think peter capaldi is my favorite doctor i think i love patrick trout to death the second doctor is amazing but i think it's i think it's finally time for me to update and say that the 12th doctor is maybe my number one now I think you've been headed there. I think I, I think mm-hmm. I can see that. And what's funny, I'm not there yet. I don't know if I would say that. And that's not to put anybody down. That's just because I'm still discovering the full breadth of like the fourth Doctor. And every time I see Tom Baker open his lovely, wonderful mouth, I mm-hmm. fall in love all over again. Um, but no, I get it. I see it, and I'm happy. I'm, I'm, I'm happy you're there. I'm happy you've learned this about yourself. Yeah, I think it's just, it's been something I've been struggling with. It's, you know, it's a self-identity problem I've been struggling with a lot. Like, I've been hold, I've been, and I will forever carry the Patrick Troughton torch, of course. Like, he's, he's Oh, he's wonderful. Boy. But it is, you know, at some point, fuck it, Pierre Capaldi's really fucking good. Like, it's like, just regardless of anything, like, he's just really fucking good. Um, yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, it, Doctor Who is great. It's it's so so great. Um, tell you what, Sean, I think for our next thing, you know, we've been giving some favorite episodes uh, over the course of this that we've been talking about. You know, like what's our favorite episode of this show of this show? I think for Doctor Who, the only way we can do that is why don't we just go Doctor to Doctor and maybe give our favorite episode of each Doctor? Okay. Some of these I have less experience with than others, I realize. But most of yes. them I have enough that I, I, it is a genuine choice I'm making. So, do you want to go All ahead right, and do you, do you get us started? Okay, I'll start. You go um, ahead and get us started. Tell us for first Doctor Who, which one is it for you? 
Um, so for First Doctor, for me, it's split of like if for episodes that ex- or stories that fully exist, it would be the Aztecs. Um, especially like after that rewatch, um, that kind of cemented it for me that that is I think my favorite First Doctor story that properly exists. If you're including what like like hypothetically, if the missing episodes were still extant, um, I would say the massacre of Saint uh, Valentine, like that one, probably would actually be my number one. But it only exists in teleclip version, so it is like hard to judge its quality as a TV thing. But the writing of that episode is amazing and has, I think, the best ending of any First Doctor story, where the First Doctor is alone in the TARDIS for the first time ever in the history of the show, and you fall, you stay with him instead of falling Stephen, the companion, as he leaves, which is like an all-time Doctor Who moment and like a pivotal moment in the history of the show. And so I would give it one of those two, depending on how your tolerance for um, reconstructed episodes. Excellent. Okay. Um, for the first Doctor, mine's the Aztecs. It's an easy one. I've seen several first Doctor stories. I could watch the Aztecs any day of the week. Aztecs is like a perfect four episode serial. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's, you know, there's a reason why I picked it. <laughs> um, yep. So for yeah, for Patrick Troughton, um, obviously Tomb of the Cybermen, all time classic. Um, I'm going to stick with um, my boy Tobias Vaughn, um, the Invasion of the Cybermen. Fucking such, just like one of the most entertaining Doctor Who stories ever. Just like Tobias Vaughn is one of the great Doctor Who villains that only appeared in one serial. Um, just excellent use of the Cybermen. Um, Patrick Troughton gets to yell at a computer, uh, which is great. Oh, so man. yeah, I'm going to go with the invasion. Ben, it would probably be the invasion for me, but I have seen Tomb of the Cybermen more recently, and I'm going to go with Tomb of the Cybermen because someone should say it. And it's got a an atmosphere that you is so thick you could cut it with a knife and is just one of the great creepy scary thought-provoking doctor who stories obviously so there you go it's great so moving on to third doctor for my third doctor um this is a classic pick for me but i would still stick with the time warrior um which is one of the first robert holmes episodes or uh, he had a couple of third doctor ones but this is the one from his last season um it is it is the first sarah jane episode and it is you know the third doctor traveling back in time it is the um oh god why am i blanking on the name of the monster fucking the uh oh god this is an embarrassing doctor who moment this is an embarrassing doctor who moment the santarans that's what it is santarans yes i was i almost said jadoon because i just watched the jadoon episode but it's not the jadoon they're only in one episode it's the santarans yeah i got caught up I got caught up on Silurian because of the S sound and it, it fucked my head. Um, yeah, so this, okay. it's the first Santaran story. Um, so it's time traveling third so doctor fighting the Santarans. Um, that's a classic. Man, I, the third doctor is the hardest one for me to pick. I, I think I like the third doctor era just like a tick more than you when we talk about it mm-hmm. comparatively. Um, and there are so many things I love. I mean, I could go, I could go with Time Warrior. I could do Carnival of Monsters. I could do yeah. uh, Spearhead from Space. These are all Robert Holmes stories. Um, God, I there's a lot. I, I also love the other um, t- Autons one, Terror of the Autons, is where you have the fucking shrink ray. Um, but I will go with the Daemons, because, or the Demons, because it has a little bit of everything I love in the Third Doctor era. You get Unit, you get the Brigadier, you get the Master, you get Joe Grant. And you get this weird little small town. It's the demons is is everything I love about the Third Doctor era in one nice little package. Awesome. So Fourth Doctor is easily the hardest for me to pick from um, because there are so many great episodes. Um, obviously, he has it's the highest concentration of Robert Holmes episodes. 
so you know like obviously brain of morbius is great towns of wing chiang is great um i i think i maybe lean city of death now i you know um for me it would either be towns of wing chiang or city of death i'm going to say city of death um because that is one that i think is like gets richer and richer every time i've seen it and i think i probably have seen that one more than any other fourth doctor story and that probably tells me that there's something pulling me to that one so i'm gonna go with city of death i would go with either city of death or genesis of the daleks uh Mm -hmm. i'm a big genesis of the daleks fan but i will go city of death because it is uh one of my favorite doctors one of my favorite writers in just the the art of writing douglas adams it's in Paris. It's yeah. City of Death is fucking perfect and amazing and beautiful. And and I will definitely go City of Death, but also with a I will plant a flag for Genesis of the Daleks and then every Robert Holmes story. Just d- those two. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Like all like it, basically anything from his like first three seasons. It's just like you can just yeah. put that in the bucket. Um. Yep. Fifth Doctor is super easy. It's the case of Androzani. There's no question. Case of Androzani. No, yep. Yeah. There's no other choice that's even viable. It's just the case of Androzani. Um, moving on, yeah. I, I feel very similarly about the Sixth Doctor. I think Vincent Sanvaros is like easily, without a question, the best Sixth Doctor story. I don't think anything else even gets particularly close to being as good as Vincent Sanvaros. I'm going to say Twin Dilemma just to troll everyone. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, seventh Doctor, now it gets hard again. Um, mm, mm, I mean, it, it's... Battlefield it's ghost- for me. Okay, it's ghost life for me. Like I'm like, okay. like it's I would put Battlefield, Remembrance of the Dog. I mean, anything from his last season, all of those are great. Um Remembrance of the Dogs is also great, but I think um especially having watched it again, Ghost Light is one of those um kind of like City of Death. It just gets so rewarding upon multiple viewings. Um I think Ghost Light was probably also my favorite one to do that podcast on. Um because nice. it's just yeah. such a fascinating story. So it's very I'll good. Go with ghost Light. And I and those episodes, we should say, are both from his last season, which is the next Blu-ray set they're doing, is season 26, yes. mm-hmm. um, which is the final season of Classic Who. And that's one I definitely want to pick up and just just watch that last run. Um, although, yeah. I kind of wish, because his seasons are so short, I wish they had just done one giant uh, Sylvester McCoy box, but I will still shell out the money for this, because that sounds awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's. I'm not sure if there's any individual single season of Classic Doctor Who that is better than his last. Um, and the last, like, because just because it's so short, like all of them are bangers. Like Battlefield, Ghostlight, Curse of Fenric, and Survival are all like all time greats. So um, that is definitely a fucking DVD or Blu-ray box set to pick up. Is that season of television? Yeah. All right. Uh, Eighth Doctor has just the movie. But we've both talked about... I have not heard many of the audio dramas, so pick an audio drama for us. Well, I mean, it's The Chimes of Midnight. It's the one okay. that we did for yeah. that podcast. It's easily... like I like a lot of his dramas, but it is Chimes of Midnight for me. Yeah. All right. Uh, Ninth Doctor. It's Dalek, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Dalek, Dalek by Robert Schumann. Dalek, that's the one of the best Dalek stories. Uh, Tenth Doctor... Uh, I would do, hold on, let me, because I have to click into the, the, uh, Wikipedia page for, for the modern episodes, because it's a split, kind of like Simpsons, um, because I'm trying to remember yes. the name of both of the episodes from the two-parter, uh, which is Human Nature and the Family of Blood. Um, I would, okay. since it's a two-parter, I'd put those together. Um, that has basically always been my favorite Tenth Doctor story, and it's not really yeah. changed in the years since. Man, mine is either Girl in the Fireplace or Blink. Because uh, we're breaking it down by Doctor And Blink doesn't have the Doctor in it much I'll just stand for Girl in the Fireplace for a moment Let's let's just say that That's good Probably one. Blink is my favorite episode from that era But I will go Girl in the Fireplace Because 
that's the one where you know you also get uh david Tennant riding a fucking horse through a window and that's pretty great awesome so moving on to matt smith for matt smith i think um, i probably the doctor's wife i'll also give a shout out to uh the 50th anniversary day of the doctor i think is also like an all-timer for me like that is one i I enjoy more and more every time i watch it um but i gotta i gotta rep doctor's wife so i'm gonna stick with the doctor's wife doctor's wife is about as good as it gets man uh he's got so many good ones this is hard yeah i'm gonna go with the 11th hour because it is probably the best that or spearhead first from space are the best opening doctor story and honestly for matt smith he's got a great run i think i've i've definitely seen uh the 11th hour the most of his episodes and i think about it the most probably from his it's it's as much of a banger as an intro story has ever been for the doctor so there you go awesome then for peter capaldi um like it's heaven sent yeah it's heaven sent i'm going to just to like have it be fun i'm going to say hellbent because that like i mean heaven sent i think is the better like contained singular episode but hellbent sure does like it's in that ghost light category for me of every time i watch it I like it more and more and more and more and yeah. more. Um, it's like that episode is so rich in so many ways that like it, it has, it's not as sort of like flawless as Heaven Sent feels to me, but it, it is like as a season finale, it is like digging into some shit that is like yeah. fucking real. Um, and some of the, some of the stuff from, from Hellbent I think is un, unsurpassed in, in many ways. Yeah. If we're not doing Heaven Sent, which you can also just kind of put Hellbent in there if you want and yeah. put them as a pair. I would go um, The Girl Who Died or yeah. or the 10 finale, the two-parter, World Enough in Time and The Doctor Falls. World Enough in Time and The Doctor Falls are just... It's, it's a Doctor Who epic in every sense of the term. It goes to darker places than Modern Who certainly has ever gone before, and in many ways than Doctor Who has ever gone before. Uh, and has some of Capaldi's best material that is, I think, the most... is One of the clearest presentations of the character of the Doctor through time um, is in that two-part finale. Absolutely. 11th or uh, 13th Doctor? Or do we just pretend the meteor hit BBC? Um, I mean, it's the... Um, what's the Demons of the Punjab? I mean, it's easy yeah. for me to pick my favorite one, yeah. even if I don't it's think it's It's the good episode. one. Yeah, it's the, yeah, it's the one that like I wouldn't mind watching that one again. Um, yeah, we're not going to say Kerblam. <laughs> no, yeah, I don't think I'm going to say Kerblam. The worst episode of Doctor Who, yeah. or at least mm-hmm. the most insulting. Yeah, certainly of modern Doctor Who without a contest. Yeah. Uh, all right, then that was fun. <sighs> Anything else to say about Doctor Who before we call it a day here, Sean? It's, Doctor Who's just great, you know. I mean, it's 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 like it's one of the things that i sometimes feel bad when like the number one is so obvious that like i have there's a part of me that's just like let's have something like let's mix it up but it's like but then inevitably it's always well no like the weight of the number one is so intense that you cannot it cannot budge it cannot be moved dr one is the number one now and forever yep uh let's do a quick recap of our top 10 sean my number 10 was crazy ex-girlfriend my number 10 was jeopardy my number nine was The Office. My number nine was Granada Television's Sherlock Holmes TV show from 1984 to 1994. My number eight was Vince Gilligan's Albuquerque Televisual Universe, The Vagatu. My number eight is Deadwood. My number seven is Star Trek The Next Generation. My number seven is The Sopranos. My number six is Hannibal. 
My number six is Justified. My number five is Gilmore Girls. And my number five is Game Center CX. My number four is The Leftovers. And my number four is The X-Files. My number three is The Simpsons. And my number three is Romance of the Three Kingdoms by CCTV. Our number two collectively is Twin Peaks. And our number one collectively is, of course, Doctor Who! I really love... I. This is maybe my favorite top ten thing we've done on this show, Sean. And I wasn't expecting it to be. But I think it's because of the crazy breadth both of our lists have. How yeah. personal they both feel to us as individual people. But then they just dovetail so perfectly at the end together. That's this podcast, right? Yeah, I feel like this is the only time... This has happened where it's like our lists are completely separate and then our top two are the same. I don't like we've yeah. had top ones be the same before. I don't think we've ever had the top two ever be the same. No, it's crazy. But like that's why and that's why this is such a great celebration of episode 300 because that's why this podcast works. We bring in different interests, but there's also this kind of core at the center that is the same. And I think that's why we've been able to do this for so long. Yeah. We're, this episode is running long, Jonathan, but I we cannot end this without me going over what That's our my old notes. list was. Yeah, so, let's do it. Yeah, it's a very it's a good idea that we definitely split this recording into two because we would have been recording for like eight hours um, if we tried yes. to do both of these back to back. All right, so um, first I'm going to go through our honorable mentions. So these are from episodes 38 and 39, which aired um uh, like the first two weeks of March 2013. So. Um, like, you know, basically we, it's like basically our TV thoughts up to 2012, more or less is what these, these, uh, two lists represent. So you had, um, a much more developed honorable mentions. I only had two. I had Twilight Zone, which would continue to be an honorable mention for me. Um, and then I had MST3K, um, which I probably wouldn't put so high as an honorable mention, mostly because I just haven't spent a lot of time watching Mystery Science Theater, um, since probably like 2014 or 2015, partially because it's not very easy to see. Um, so I just don't get around to it much. Your honorable mentions are much more detailed. Um, you had, so this important detail is we, back then we put anime and everything into the list. So one of your honorable mentions was Death Note. Um, and I also specifically note here that at, during that conversation, Jonathan, you said that you hate it when people separate out stuff like anime and cartoons from other TV shows. And I thought that that was a very funny comment to make when we separated out anime and stuff from other TV shows on our list. I mean, you, you obviously said it in like a, like, Oh, critics don't consider it the same. We did it because it wasn't reasonable to put all those on one list. Um, then this is a fun honorable mention. Your second honorable mention was Louie. Mother, you know, I'm not the only one. Let's be very clear. We all loved Louie. It was a great show. Then we learned he's a fucking serial (laughs) sex offender. And wait, there was way more serial sex offense in that show than we realized. And now we all need to go take a shower and rub ourselves down very vigorously because I feel dirty when I think of that. Yep, that this was one where when I was listening to this podcast, while taking a walk, you, like you said, "Oh, Louie," and I like just like the in the involuntary <laughs> inhaling of breath that I made was if like anybody had been around me, they would have looked at me very weird, <laughs> the, the, like physical reaction I had. Um, which that was when Louie was still airing, I think season three. Um, I was making we, notes of where I want to be clear. We didn't even have a hint of an intimation back then that he had done anything. There, there weren't even the rumors yet. Yeah. I mean, this was six years ago. So, you know, time, yeah. time is real. History changes. Um, your next one was Breaking Bad. Um, and this was before it had finished airing. So this was yeah. um, before the last eight episodes. So we had had that first like weird 
half season whatever bullshit they did when they split that up um but but Breaking Bad was not quite done um then you did Daily Show with Jon Stewart and The Colbert Report um because this is 2013 and so both of those were still a thing um then you had Lost was in your honorable mentions which I was surprised by because I would have thought for sure that it would have been on your list then um, I thought it, so too. I thought it was weird. Nope. And and your specific reasoning was that um, you said that you were not in a hurry to watch Lost again. So I think that was like part yeah. of your reasoning was you just had didn't have an urge to rewatch it, and so you kept it off your list. And I haven't Lost. Honestly, I like the ending of Lost so much it closed with a book on it, and I have never felt the urge to rewatch it. One day I probably will, but you know, yeah. It's, it is a show that, like, feels so of its time in TV history that, yes. like, the idea of rewatching Lost feels very peculiar to me. Um, even as someone who did, like, I had watched, like, the first five seasons and I liked it. But yeah. Um, then your next honorable mention was The Simpsons, which, which upgraded from honorable mention quite a bit this time around. How was that not on my top? What the fuck was I thinking? I don't know. Um, and then your next honorable mention was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. No Joss Whedon shows on our list this time. Nope. Um, so then, do you want me to go through my top ten from back then, or your top ten first? Oh God, which one's more embarrassing? They're both pretty bad. <laughs> okay, go through. Go through mine. Let's okay, just do it. let's get it over with. Well, your let's number ten. Me. I mean, your number ten is good. It's maybe a bit low. Is Star Trek? Um, you put TOS or the original series and TNG together, so that was your number okay. ten. Um, then number nine was Doctor. Yeah, number nine was Doctor Who. Um, and again, we were at mid-Series 7, so this is pre-The Snowmen um, for Doctor Who. Number 8 was Parks and Rec. Get that up there. I talked about why Parks and Rec is not on my list this time. I love Parks and Rec. I, I'm not embarrassed at all. That's a great show. Yep. Number 7 was Firefly. Uh, uh, I think see? I still like Firefly, but... I probably still like Firefly, but I had not thought about Firefly in years until it came yep. up on that recording. I'm like, oh, right. People used to, like, really care about Firefly. Firefly is a very good TV show. I just, it just feels so dated at this point in a weird way. Um, number six yes, was Full Metal is. Alchemist. Um, and I think you put this and, like, the original and Brotherhood kind of in the same list. Then number five yeah, and was... And I, I would still, you will probably, I will probably do the same thing when we do it next time, yeah. Yeah. Um, number five was Chuck. Huh? Yep. Huh? That was my reaction when I heard I mean, that, that too. I was into that show. That makes sense. You know, I'm sure it was huh. good. I'm sure it was good. That's high. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Number five, Chuck. Mm-hmm. Talk about TV shows nobody has talked about in the past six years. <laughs> Fucking Chuck. Oh man. Um. Number four. This is a respectable. Okay. Choice. Go on. Yeah. Number four was Dragon Ball. Okay. That's low. Yeah, it's low, but it's, you know, it at least should be in the top five. So that's, um, there you yes. go. Um, number three is Freaks and Geeks. Can I tell you a uh, confession? Yeah, go ahead. This is so fucking embarrassing. Freaks and Geeks is a phenomenal TV show. It's only 18 episodes, and at the time of that list, I hadn't finished all 18, and I still never have. <laughs> that's the I... most fraudulent choice I've ever put on a top 10 list. I just thought I was going to someday, and I was like future proofing for myself. I don't do this anymore. I want to be very clear. I'm, I'm a more respectable podcast edition. I haven't seen every Doctor Who, but there's like a, a thousand of those, so I don't feel bad about that. But no, um, yeah, move on. What was my number two? Yeah, I do want to know. Like, I, I didn't listen to everything we said about Freaks and Geeks when you put it on your list last time, but I don't think you mentioned that you had. The no, no, no. I lied. I completely lied. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay, the number two was Mad Men. Okay. Yeah, which it, that also had not finished airing yet. I think it was at season no. five. Um, when yeah, you... I love Mad Men too. I, I don't know. I have complicated thoughts about all that. Um, that maybe we can get into another time. But Mad Men means a lot. It's a, it's a, it's one of the great shows. But yes. Yeah, I was very surprised when Mad Men was not on your list this time. Me too. Then your number one was The Wire. Mm-hmm. Also, so I don't. Here's the thing. If I'm making a list of the best American TV shows, The Wire and Mad Men are on there. That's not what this list was. I really leaned into the favorite of it all this time. Um, and, yeah, for whatever reason, just those those didn't make the cut for me this time. They, they don't have as personal a connection to me, I guess is yeah. what I would say. Cause it's interesting because that was kind of our discussion on the podcast at the time um, between our choices because yours definitely, like, because The Wire definitely was one of those that when you said, like, oh, The Wire was my number one TV show, I was kind of like, really? Like, I've never heard you say anything about The Wire. I, I didn't even know that that had been something that you had watched. We have never talked about it since. It's never come Oh, up. it's a, uh, The Wire is one of the great TV shows. If you've never yeah. seen it, I mean, it is, it's as good as it gets. But, yeah, um, The Wire is also just very hard to watch, so... Yeah, the, like I have no, I've, I have not seen, I'm obviously going to get around to The Wire. That's like on my short list now that I've seen like Deadwood and Sopranos. I want to get to it. But it is one of those where it feels like the methodology of the lists kind of have changed from like, yeah, this is like a really great TV show to like, this is a TV show that like, like Gilmore Girls, that like speaks to your heart. Like this is like yes. in, in you. Um, yeah, like, like The Wire is a better show than Gilmore Girls, but that's not quite the purpose of this list. Um, and that's also probably why I did my weird thing with Freaks and Geeks, because I do think that's one of the best shows I certainly about teenagers that I've ever seen. I also think, I don't know how well that show has aged with some actors like James Franco in there, who yeah. we also know is a super perv. But, um, I mean, Linda Cardellini's performance on that is an all-timer. So, anyway, so that's my 10. Let's hear yours, Sean. Yeah, mine is not as embarrassing, with the exception of my anime picks are um, bad and so I want to make it clear, this is before I even started watching, or I started, before I started studying Japanese. So this list was made at a very peculiar time for me in my relationship to anime, where I was like just getting back into it and kind of discovering non-shonen anime, like, right? Like trying, like, yeah, this is well before Gundam or like me getting into like a more diverse range. So when you get to the anime picks, they are bad and they, I mean, they're not, both of them are good shows, but they're not, they wouldn't be up there. Um, they wouldn't even be close to my top 10 now. They wouldn't be in like a top 30 probably. Um, my number 10 is Black Adder, which I do think Black Adder is a very good show. Um, it's very funny. Season four of Black Adder, um, which is set during World War One, is great. Um, and I've been thinking about it a lot recently because of uh, stuff I'm teaching right now. But it would not be in my top 10. I've, like, I haven't gotten, I've never gone back to that show since then. Um, number nine is Star Trek, the original series. I still love Star Trek, the original series. That is now one of my honorable mentions. Number eight is Sherlock Holmes, the Granada TV show. So that is still... Wait, where is it on my list now? Um, nine. Number, Give it a nine, nine. Now. So it went down one. Um, does that make sense? Then number seven. Here's one of my, my anime picks. Number seven is Claymore. Claymore's good. It's not that good. Like, it has one really great arc in the middle that is fantastic that I still really like. But other than that, it's like a very normal average level kind of anime um number six is angel beats which is another just like no that's like it's fine it's a totally fine anime it was the first anime like that i had ever seen so i just didn't know what the fuck i was talking about at that time it's like 
is just like, yeah, it's good. It's like, it's a totally fine show. I have now seen a lot more stuff that does all the stuff that that show did, but much, much better. Um, number five was Angel, the the Buffy spinoff show. Angel's good. I've not like thought about Angel since like 2014, so it would not. I I had, I had forgotten. I had honestly seen Angel until <laughs> until I started making That's a list great. of like, oh yeah, I guess I have seen Buffy and Angel. Like they're both good shows. They're just not shows I like have a lot of affection for. Um, yeah. Number four is Dragon Ball. Too low on my list. Too low on your list. Um, it's weird that we both ended up at Dragon Ball at the same place. Do not listen to the, our conversations about Dragon Ball at that podcast. Nope. It's fucking terrible. Um, number three, this I thought was interesting. I had forgotten that I had done this, but I, I think it was a good choice. Um, my number three was the DC Animated Universe cartoons. So I had wrapped up Batman the Animated Series, Superman the Animated Series, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, and Batman Beyond into one mega pick, which is breaking the rules too much, and I would not do that on a list now. I don't think those shows are connected enough to do that with. Um, but I do love all those shows. Um, then my number two was the X-Files. X-Files is fucking great. And then my number one was and always will be Doctor Who. Do you want to hit some honorable mentions for 2019 now? Um, yeah, I mean, I, most of mine I've kind of already hit. Like Star Trek, the original series is a big honorable mention for me. And Twilight Zone is another big honorable mention. Um, that Both those shows are great. Just didn't quite yeah. make my list. Among ones I haven't mentioned, I just wanted to throw out there, if I have, if I had seen more of this show at this point, I think it would have made my top 10, and I'm still here and there working my way through it, is Batman from 1966 with Adam West. Mm -hmm. I love that show to death, and I think maybe if we do this again in six years, that might be on there if I have seen more of it. Um, Monty Python's Flying Circus is yeah. a very different show than anything we talked about, but is one of my favorite comedy institutions. Um... And Community, from uh, which aired for six seasons over the last decade, um, is also one that I really, really love. Um, wasn't necessarily in serious contention for my top ten, but I love that one. Um, like, honestly, a lot of comedies. Like, um, it's not a TV, I guess it's a web series, but the first, like, five seasons of Red vs. Blue will always have a place in my heart. Because yeah. I can still go back. Those 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 have aged well to me by and large. Um, they're e even better than like some of the later era stuff they did. I still find screamingly funny. Like season two, Red versus Blue, I could watch any day of the week. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say all of those just to add a little more comedy because neither of our lists were particularly comedy heavy. Yeah. Um. I a couple of other honorable mentions for me. One would be Columbo is a show that if I have had seen more of it, I think Columbo would probably be on there. Columbo is. It's fucking so good. Um, again, just like the first episode is so amazing. Um, but I've only seen like probably the first two seasons of Columbo. So I have not seen anywhere near enough to for me to like justify it to myself to put it up there. Um, yeah. Also, one is Law and Order, the original Law and Order. Like there's a part of me that really wants to go back and like properly watch through if maybe not every single season, but like pick at like around the time when like one of the major casts kind of get put in Um, like, you know, I'm not going to go watch fucking pre Sam Watterson law and order who in their light, right man would ever watch law and order without Sam Watterson on it. But law and order is a show that is like near and dear to my heart. I just like, I, it's hard for me to like choose to watch law and order. It's just a thing that like one watched. It was not something you like went out and sought, but it is law and order is so good. You know what the one like that for me is, Sean? Yeah. Is ER, the mm -hmm. uh, medical yeah. drama, which I also think is... Like, ER has maybe the best pilot episode of anything I've ever seen, that or Twin Peaks. If you've never seen the ER pilot, the ER pilot is just a phenomenal movie. And in, in fact, it was basically made as a movie. Um, 
so and and there's a lot of great stuff particularly in like the the first seven or eight seasons of er but i like that also that show also has been really tough to watch in the streaming era it only came on streaming like two years ago for the first time yeah so there's like that whole like kind of class of tv show is just kind of like yeah hard to get into now um and then my last honorable mention is like was my um kind of like onboard ramp to get into game center cx um, it's a show called Tokyo Encounter, which is a really weird Japanese game, not like a game show like Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune, like people playing video game show, um, that it stars uh, Nakamura Yuichi and Tomokazu Sugita, who are two um, great um, Japanese voice actors who are like in their 30s and are just big video game nerds. And the show is basically 30-minute episodes, about two episodes, there are about like eight episodes come out a year in two-episode chunks. And they just kind of get different voice actors on and they just like sit down on a couch basically and just play video games and joke around. And it's a very fun, very relaxing show. Only about the first 30 or so episodes have been um, subbed in English by fans. So you can't get all of it. But it is the show that like I watched through that like like very rapidly um, shortly after I graduated uh, from Boulder. And then after I caught up on that, I was like, I want to watch something else kind of like this. I did some research, found Game Center CX. And then Game Center CX like took over a certain portion of my life in terms of TV viewing habits for a long time after that. But I still love Tokyo Encounter. I still watch it. Um, so if you are into, if you like um, nerdy Japanese voice actors and you like weird Japanese video games, Tokyo Encounter is a fun show to watch. You can just find it online. You'll obviously have to pirate it and get English subs, but it is very good. Awesome. Well, Sean, I think this has been quite a grand celebration for our 300th episodes Two weeks, almost eight hours of podcast. Yep. It'll get you through an entire work day. Uh, I'm proud of these episodes. I think this was fun. Yep. I, it was obviously looking at our old list. It was a, they were list de- deeply needed updating. Um, like uh, yes, they did. They're almost completely different for both of us. Like there's only, a, yep. it, in, I think the main similarity would be if we had done anime, Dragon Ball would both be prominent on our list. Um, but cutting out the anime, there's almost nothing recognizable. Well, I'm looking forward to the anime episode when we wind up doing that. I'm looking forward to a lot of stuff next week on the show. Um, I think we'll have to do at least a short podcast talking about El Camino, the Breaking Bad movie, because that'll be on Netflix. Yep. Very easy for both of us to see. Um, and I think we're both looking forward to that. Um, yeah, so lots of good stuff coming up. Sean, how about we just finish with a fun story I forgot to tell during the stuff portion, but I think I might as well tell it as a way to get us out of this podcast. Sure. Okay. I don't know what this is, but go ahead. Well, you know how we have swapped stories for a couple weeks now about ways that our students that we teach make us feel old? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. So this week in my film class, we were watching the movie Jaws by Steven Spielberg. I know it. And so one of the things I made a slide for for my discussion sections is I just listed my favorite Spielberg movies to kind of get it because I wanted to hear what they had seen and recommend some movies to them. And one of my favorite Spielberg movies, I know this is one of your favorites too, is Lincoln. Yep. Right? Lincoln came out in 2012. And I said, anyone here seen Lincoln? Has anyone here seen this? And one kid kind of raised their hand and I'm like, oh yeah, you, you, you like that movie? And he said, yeah, I think it was good. I was like 11 when it came out. And I just, it slipped out. I was like... Oh, fuck you. <laughs> in the middle <laughs> class, I just was like... And I turned it, it was a joke, but it was also like an involuntary response. I like looked at him, I looked at the screen, I saw the date, 2012, and I'm like, I was 20 when that came out. <laughs> fuck you, kid. 
fucking remember you're like fuck off being i hate time i hate the flow of time fuck this i might get fired because i told a kid fuck you they all thought it was funny i kind of keep my class pg-13 and do one f-bomb per class so i hope they get it but um yeah it was just an involuntary oh fuck you that's very good now that you've given that i i want to um give one i have one statement to make to nintendo um nintendo you can go fuck yourselves the next time you want to release a fucking mobile game just don't your fucking mario kart game has ruined fucking like 90 percent of my classes since it's come out i it's just the fucking most heinous horse shit nintendo you are causing active harm to the younger generation because they're not getting the fucking education they need because you're playing their your awful fucking money grubbing ass bullshit mario kart game next time you think you want to release a goddamn mobile game just don't you assholes